This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Thursday to you. And may the 4th be with you. Do you have a lisp today? Pardon? No, I said may the 4th be with you. Lisp? No. I'm just celebrating May 4th. The 4th. <laughs> it does sound like I'm a little lispy today. This is the day... Um, by the way, first... Apparently, do you know when the first time May the 4th be with you was used? No. Let's just say it uh, was first used by Margaret Thatcher's political party to congratulate her on her election on May 4th, 1979. (laughs) May the 4th be with you. Isn't that cute? I just thought it was some six-year-old boy. Oh, no. No, it was was the polls of uh, Great Britain. That's it. So are you going to go home and watch all six... Uh, films negative on TNT negative no no I've got other things to do we've got a lot of weeding to do weeding that's what our family will be doing apparently for the next uh, six months the joys of owning property you could do they allow controlled burns in your city I should do a controlled burn which city in Townton Abbey or in my hometown yes yeah where your where your yard is where you're weeding no I don't think they allow controlled burns Mm, okay Hey, uh, by the way, yes, sir. Townton Abbey, not a real place. Boom, controlled burn. Hmm. That was awkward. Uh, we'll be talking about Star Wars Day. We'll be using um, the fourth be with us, be with us all day. We'll be using that great phrase. Be withing us? We will be done withing with the fourth all day. And, of course, um, so much to, things to cover. We will be talking about jobs in the Rust Belt. One of um, the, what's the phrase that we would use? Uh, the lowest and highest well-being hmm. is, the, is the phrase the uh, researchers use, where, where there is the highest and lowest of well-being. The Rust Belt tends to be taking the biggest hit in the country, along with the South. But the Rust Belt, it's hard to get a job there, and people are moving out. And so how do you get a job, keep a job, find a job, when there are no jobs. So we'll be speaking with a researcher that has some insight into that and what we should be doing, what government should be doing, and and give us some some interesting ideas. Remember, this may be the reason Donald Trump won was because he he won the Rust Belt. He went in and made some promises, and by golly, they might actually be – they might be changeable if you could do just a few things, and our researcher will talk about that. So we'll get to that interesting topic, plus, of course, just the latest and greatest, some information you might even want to know, and other things you just need to know. We'll get to all of that fun stuff, but let's start with the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Floods across the U.S. Midwest that have killed at least five people shut major roadways in the St. Louis area on Wednesday, while residents of vulnerable areas piled sandbags to avert destruction as rivers were expected to crest. The flooding was caused by a storm that parked over the region last weekend and dumped almost 12 inches of rain, the National Weather Service said. A fast-moving storm is expected to drop more than
than uh, five inches more rain on Wednesday. Already saturated parts of central and southern Missouri, southern Illinois, northern Arkansas, central Indiana, and Oklahoma. The flooding along the Mississippi River and Ohio River is the worst since late 2015. You've seen any of the pictures. There's this, the area is pretty flat, so the water just sort of sits there. Uh, it just won't go. Doesn't I mean, go away. Like Thirty-six hours to, for the water to recede, and then you go back in. Like the entire towns are flooded, stores, uh. homes, everything. It's, it's terrible. A manhunt underway Wednesday after two plainclothes police officers in Chicago were shot and wounded as they sat in an unmarked vehicle in what authorities are describing as a targeted attack. Two vehicles pulled up alongside the officers and opened fire Tuesday evening in a neighborhood on the city's south side. One officer shot in the arm and hip, the other in the back. Police spokesman said the officers were conducting a follow-up investigation to a previous incident, but they were wearing civilian clothes with vests bearing police badges. Johnson said their vehicle was, or the spokesperson said their vehicle was unmarked. Police believe that the officers were indeed targeted in this situation. A day after airline executives went before lawmakers to defend their customer service, American Airlines confirmed Wednesday it will shrink the distance between economy seats in some new planes. But don't accuse the carrier of cutting legroom. Right? It says the distance between the back of one seat and the back of the next is no, known as the pitch in industry jargon. It will be 30 inches for most of the economy seats in the uh, 737 MAX jets that the carrier will start flying this year, American Airlines confirmed. For three rows in the economy section, the distance will be 29 inches. Losing an inch. For comparison, the distance in a similar size Boeing 737 uh, that America currently operates, it's 31 inches. Wow. Right, so you're, you're dealing like, you know, inches, does it really matter? When, when is the day that you just are supposed to wrap your legs around the seat in front of you? Absolutely. So this is a <clears throat> excuse me, a seat comparison last year on the website thepointsguy.com, a website that tracks airline loyalty pro- programs and other perks called 29-inch pitch miserable while a 34-inch pitch super comfy. Super comfy. JetBlue's A32 planes offer a 34-inch pitch on all seats, the site noted. And they offer blue chips. Uh, what does that mean? Like blue, like, like blue potato chips. chips. Oh, really? Well, those are just older potato no, chips, I think. And an array of gourmet snacks. <laughs> Man, somebody works for JetBlue. So American Airlines apparently making flying miserable. They are destroying the What pitch. a great commercial. Yeah. American Airlines making flying miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and don't, don't forget, we will pull you off the plane if we have to. And a story that happened uh, right outside our building here. At what? the uh, BYU Broadcasting. It was, you know, in the area. Okay, here in cool. Provo. A Provo police officer stopped to go to the bathroom Tuesday morning at a gas station. When he walked in, a man in the bathroom suddenly said, I didn't do it, and handed him his ID. The officer was really kind of confused <laughs> by the whole situation, so he ran the license through the records and saw that it was a suspended license. The officer still was unsure what the man was so nervous about, but he stopped him after watching him drive away from the gas station using the suspended license. The man was driving a stolen car, but he said he didn't know it was stolen. A friend had asked him to drive it to Salt Lake City. <laughs> he added that the friend was driving a stolen 2015 Toyota Highlander. Police confirmed that a Highlander had been stolen in the Salt Lake area. City area okay. recently. Police asked the man to call his 33-year-old friend and say, hey, could you come down to Provo? Bring your car. And the guy's like, yeah, no problem. Sure, I'll be right there. But after seeing the police, the man fled in the stolen Highlander. He crashed into a bedroom of a home nearby and sped north on the freeway. 
Authorities decided not to pursue him on the freeway, but a sheriff's airplane watched him head into the town of Alpine, which Mm -hmm. is just uh, north of here a little bit. The chase ended when all four of the Highlander tires went flat. Police likely used a spike strip. Police arrested the driver and the woman in the car. Nobody was injured. Provo police commended their officers for turning this strange encounter and arrest room into a half-day investigation, ending ending in the recovery of two stolen vehicles and the arrest of of a dangerous subject. Holy cow. So it all started because some dude's in the bathroom. He's like, I didn't do it. Okay, let's just in. again, coach the crime, coach the criminal. You you don't start with that. I'm guessing maybe he was under the influence of something, did perhaps. Not, did not say that in the report. I bet. Well, mm-hmm. he maybe he was in the restroom for a reason. Maybe he had just finished a big gulp. Yeah. Maybe Jiminy Cricket was on his shoulder just chipping away. Just, yeah, doubt it. Chirping away. And then just giving up all the information. Your friend, you're driving yeah. a stolen car. Your friend has a stolen car. And yeah, I'll call him to come down here. No problem. <laughs> Unbelievable. So that guy wasn't arrested, was he? Yes. Oh, shit. No, what's weird, though, is did the officer ever get to go to the restroom? It doesn't say. I'm hoping he did. He had a long day ahead of him. Well, my mama said that would that's bad for your kidneys. That's right. We'll never know. That's the suspenseful part. See, <laughs> that's the part of the story no one else tells. Just details. You have to get yeah, them all. It's all about the details. Did you see this picture of Steve Bannon's um, whiteboard? Yes. Okay. It's again, it reminds me of this criminal because, you know, you don't just start with I didn't do it. And you also, if you're Steve Bannon, the the overlord, the dark lord of the White House, as he's being called, mm. you don't t- have a picture taken of you with everything you have to accomplish behind you. Or even, even just your uh... – kind of your brainstorming session on the board, right? He has yeah. a bunch of lists. These are oh, yeah. some goals we're shooting for, not necessarily things they're even going to pursue. Well, like end, catch, and release. Yeah. Okay, end it. Uh, triple the number of ICE agents. Check. Yeah. Restore this and secure communities program. Check. Hire 5,000 more Border Patrol agents. Check. Like he's got checks next to some of them. Some of them he hasn't put checks next to. Finally complete the, finally complete the biometric entry exit visa program. So we need a biometric version of it. We don't have that done yet. Propose the passage of the Oliver Bill. I mean, there's a point, I guess, where you just don't care. Or is he just not thinking? Or is this the people around him not catching these little details? Could be. Maybe turn him a little bit to the to the left so that you get a well, can't you just or see, something. Can't you see the photographer saying, uh, Steve, can you move a little bit to the right so we can catch both sides of your board? <laughs> In the uh, – my time at sports radio, Yeah, I'd go to uh, NBA basketball practices, and the specific location I'd go to, you're in the practice facility interviewing players. Right. Well, on the second floor, you just look up, there's a window, and you can see the general manager's office. He has a window, and there's a huge whiteboard with every player in the NBA that he's interested in. And you can How just... long they have left on their contract, and you know the possibility of them making a deal, and possibly who on the team could they match up, <laughs> and... For a while, they left that window open, and reporters would just stand down there and look up at the board and kind of get an idea of what he's thinking, you know? And, and so they, they noticed, and they started closing the windows finally because you don't give up. The whiteboard. The whiteboard's where Never. you brainstorm. Yeah. So yeah. I, many of these ideas yeah. may not even be things they can even accomplish, but now people are like, oh, they're going to do this. And it no reminds one. me. We need a whiteboard. That's part of the problem with this mm. show. We don't have a whiteboard. Yeah. Hey, by the way, that's yeah. the name of my band, too, uh, Steve Bannon's Whiteboard. Really? Mm-hmm. That was a weird name. We're pretty good. Never heard of you. Hmm. Um, can We're you still imagine... in the brainstorming session. Oh, are you? Yeah. So you haven't really put on any music yet? No. 
You're still whiteboarding it? Yes. Good luck to you. Um, what if I told you that you were going to make $250,000 a year? Thank you. It depends where you live to see if that matters or not. Because Rest. if you live near Silicon Valley or in Silicon Valley, it's not going to go very far. You are the working poor. You are. <laughs> if you're making 250 k you're the working poor. It, apparently, it costs $1,500 per month for a bed in a shared room of two. $1,500 to have a bunk mate. It's insane. I mean, prison costs you'll, more than you'll that. You'll hear less like than that. interns in Silicon Valley make like $95,000 a year. Unbelievable. Right? But you can't live on that money and, and have an apartment and, you know. You, you want your own room? It's $2,500. If you just want one room, like basically even in a hotel kind of thing, one room, $2,500. Probably still a shared bathroom because right. you're, you're just in a house. <laughs> Tell me about it. If you want a total of three rooms and a restroom thrown in, so kind of a little suite. $7,500. Do you know this is why they have other silicone, like silicon slopes in like Utah? I mean, to get away from that economy yeah. that's Do you know what you can get for $2,500 in Utah? Oh, yeah. Man, like a double wide. I heard a discussion on this once where, you know, what, what is considered rich? Yeah. What money, what, what threshold is rich? And people were calling in from all across the country and – People in the Midwest were saying this amount of money and just be living like a king. And then someone calls in from Hawaii and they said, I couldn't have a house. Yeah. I'd be living on the street with that kind of money. And it was, you know, around the $100,000 mark. Man. Just won't work. In certain places, it's just you need more money. Uh, You want to lease a house? It's $120,000 a year, I guess. This message brought to you. For the pool. Brought to you by the Utah Chamber of Commerce. Come to Utah. <laughs> or today we're talking Rust Belt. You could go to the Rust Belt because property might be less expensive there now, but there's no jobs. So our next guest will be talking about how do you get jobs to the Rust Belt? Some of the latest research. And are we training up our students, our children to be able to get a job and the jobs that are there? Stick with us. Interesting insight up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, in the 1970s, steel and coal were on the decline in the Midwestern and Mid-Atlantic regions of the United States. Now it's known as the Rust Belt, right, that area? Dr. Dana Mitra is with us today to discuss her research on education's role in building jobs in the Rust Belt. We've heard a lot about the impact of um, a lack of prosperity in that area. In fact, many believe it may have tipped the election toward Donald Trump. And uh, Dana's here to talk about her research on how we might be able to turn around jobs and education in that area. Dana, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. When, when we talk about the Rust Belt, um, no, no, first, first of all, why, why did you choose to do an educational study on the Rust Belt and not other parts of the country? Well, it's because it's where I'm from. I'm from the Pittsburgh area, and my family and my husband's family grew up in the mill towns along the the valleys and rivers of the Pittsburgh area. So I saw firsthand the shifting of these towns from thriving places to places of despair in a lot of cases, increases in drug rates and, and loss of hope. 
It really has. When when we look at the charts, um, it has one of the lower uh, you know levels of well being in the mm-hmm. entire country. Definitely, definitely. Um, the colleges and 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 you know people who go on to college move on to other places, but the folks who just were being prepared to go work in the mills that 's not an option anymore. So I wanted to look at what was happening in schools and are they preparing students to go on to to look at jobs that are available as opposed to just looking at what 's missing hmm. did you um, what what are you finding? What did you see in the research? Well we found that the most promising places where were whenever there was signaling to show what jobs are available in these regions. Pittsburgh's rather fortunate as a Rust Belt area in that there, it is still a growing economy. And so it's important for folks to know what kind of jobs they could have. For example, there's a shortage of welders. There's a shortage of nurses. There's a sense of place in Rust Belt communities that folks don't want to move away. So there's, that's such an asset if we can build upon it by helping to draw attention to what kind of training could keep folks there, allow their sense of community to stay, but still have a profitable and, and successful life. So the people want to stay. The, they, they don't necessarily want to go away to college and then stay away. If they did go to college, I guess they'd want to come back. But, but there are jobs. It just sounds like we're not, they're not prepared for those jobs. They're not, they're, the educational system may not be setting them up to succeed. In the Pittsburgh region, there are definitely jobs. Doing some other work with some colleagues up in upstate New York, for example, and more, um, there there are also areas where there aren't as many jobs. And in those places, we need to depend more on things like localization, where um, that's a fancy term for the fact that we have this global economy, but it also means that technology allows us to work in a range of places. So there's 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 this growing idea of having call centers in Rust Belt communities, and I know there's one even in Utah among women, so that there's ways to think about <clears throat> ways the communities can really disperse its workforce into these areas of places where folks need jobs through the use of technology. I mean, isn't that, a, that's a, that seems like a great way to, to make it work, especially you need labor force and you need, uh, you know, smart people that with some training can get stuff to happen. It's, it's just, I guess we might need to get ahead of the curve. Do you feel like education is, um, are, are we preparing our people appropriately? Do we, because one of the things I know I, I read is the fact that a lot of times the, these kids get into college and they have to do prereqs that weren't, they weren't prepared for from their high schools. The high schools could be teaching things that could make it so much easier for us to just immediately get in and get the skills we need to do a job. Right. So so there's this interesting tension of everyone wants their kid to go to college. That's currently viewed as the the measure of success. Every parent wants their kid to go to college. And in every community, you can't convince parents that going to college isn't the way to go. And if a kid can succeed through college, that is shown to be the most successful path to a future. But what we're finding here in the United States, we have a stigma against technical education and career education, which is much more common in places like Germany, where if, if there's a kid who's really good with their hands or good with mechanics, that we get them into these career and technical schools. And we have them here in the United States. There's just a sense among parents that that's not a good choice for a lot of kids. And what we're finding is actually a lot of those careers are are paying really well. 
um, and that that might actually be the better the better pathway, particularly if people want to stay in a partic- in a community. So. So kind of destigmatizing the, the, the range of opportunities of ways to get training is one way to do that. And the other piece is that if, if kids are going to go to college, there needs to be better communication between the high schools and college about what college ready is. Because kids are showing up to college and they don't, they're not ready for the basic level math, for example. So they may be in what's called remedial math for two years before they can actually start earning co- credits at the college level in math. So they're spinning in a system where they're paying for education because they didn't get that in high school. Oh. And they feel like they're in college, right? They're yeah. taking credits, but they're not actually on a, on a career path. And it's extremely hard to be there. They're taking out loans. And two years in, they haven't even really made progress towards a degree. So, in fact, the data showed 65 percent of, I guess, high school students would go to college, but only a quarter of them would finish. That's right. That's right. And so and from the incentivization of community colleges, they just look at enrollments, right, or kind of those entry-level colleges. So, And there's kind of a churning of... They're not really looking at are those kids finishing as their metric, but there's just new people coming in all the time. So community colleges don't necessarily track what needs to be looked at here, and so it's a question of whose responsibility is it to to serve these kids and help them to get on a track that's going to help them to be successful. What a weird pressure. You're getting all this pressure to go to college um, from your parents because they maybe didn't go to college. And we've heard forever that, you know, if you go to college, that's the fastest way to increase your inc- income. But then you go to college and you if you don't get a de- like a, a science degree or, um, you know, computer programming degree or some kind of some kind of STEM degree or health degree, you may end up uh, having a job that doesn't pay. And then all of a sudden, you've got to go get the job. In fact, another statistic you talked about was one third of college graduates end up taking the job that they could have gotten right out of high school. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of wasted the time, the money, and we're back to just starting over, really. Yeah. An example is my husband's cousin, Derek. So he he has a strong sense of place and, and really wants to stay in his community on the Ohio River in Pittsburgh, but also has a passion to be a music teacher. So he went and got a four-year degree at Slippery Rock University in western Pennsylvania as a music teacher. Um, Pennsylvania has a declining population. We have an old population. You know, we have baby boomers and the elderly. And so to, we really need for those beginning entry elementary school music jobs to go somewhere else for a while, to the growing areas of the country like Nevada, North Carolina. And there has to be a willingness to, to move away, even if it's temporarily, to get a teaching position. Mm. in the state of Pennsylvania for just about everyone. And so that was too big of a risk for him. He didn't feel like that was worth leaving his community. So he was driving a bread truck out of out of college with these loans and this, this bachelor's degree. Um, and eventually he got a nice job working on the railroad. But once again, the college degree that he spent all this money for is sitting there not used because he doesn't want to move away from home. And the mm. idea of going even to Virginia or North Carolina felt too far away. Um, so that we need to teach young people if, you know, and ha- make them understand that that's great if you want to be a music teacher. Are you willing to move? Is, is it that important? Or if you, it's really important for you to stay home, then what kind of occupations can help you to be here and still have a successful career? And, and particularly in Rust Belt communities through 
partnerships with nonprofit ec- economic development corporations through guidance counselors. There needs to be a greater awareness of this, these choices that, that young people really need to make um, because they can't necessarily have it all in economies that are not thriving right now. Do, do you see this um, attachment to area in other parts of the country? We not as much. Um, there's something about, as they say, that, the, and this is true in Appalachia as well. There's the book Hillbilly Elegy, which yeah. is quite famous right now, and there's another one called Rust Belt Boy about Pittsburgh. There's, um, and, and Hillbilly Elegy talks about kind of culturally where these folks came from and um, in, in parts of, of Europe that just um, connect to this sense of roots and family and kinship. Um, there's also research that shows that the, the valleys and mountains somehow create a, a sense of folks wanting to stay. I, I'm not sure if that's true. Hmm. But um, certainly the, the Rust Belt Boy book talked about um, Czechoslovakian, Polish, these tight-knit communities that, um, that, that are really strong. And I, and I know when I go back to visit my mother-in-law, and I'll be doing that this weekend in Pittsburgh, that their sense of what their, their area is is, is that small community of Baden, Pennsylvania for her. Pittsburgh is only 20 minutes away, but when we suggest going to Pittsburgh, we might as well be going to another <laughs> another state. The moon, you know? yeah. Um, it, so even the idea of going into town to get a job um, it, it's, it's something that more and more folks are doing, but it's, it's, it's not part of the culture. Everything's always been right there, the Catholic church, the school, and the mill was right across, right across the river. So it's a shift in mindset, um, and, and there's, there's, there's consequences, right, yeah. in terms of a break of the fabric of that community um, when folks disperse. So I know my mother-in-law is so incredibly proud that her two sons got college degrees, two of the you know, most of the cousins haven't, right? And um, we live three hours away, and, um, you know, my brother-in-law lives in North Carolina and have great successful lives, but there's a loss there, too, mm. right? Because right. her sons aren't down the street like her sister's kids are. She doesn't get to see her grandchildren every day. Um, so she did everything she could do to make sure her kids had a great life, but then she lost having regular contact with them as a result. So there's a paradox there. No, it's totally true. And I even see it in Utah where, every, you know, a lot want to come back culturally, religious, their religions are here. And mm-hmm. they – but they come back. So we have like uh, – we have an abundance of dentists. We have like more dentists per capita, <laughs> which makes it less affordable for every dentist. But yeah. and but everybody's teeth, they look great. And it um, – <laughs> but I mean it's same thing with like – with medical practitioners, I mean, everybody wants to come back here, and we have a good economy as opposed to what's going through the Rust Belt right now. But yeah, the emotional side of not being with your family, plus maybe a little weird, uh, maybe a guilt. Like, mm-hmm. I can't just up and leave and leave everybody in this condition. Maybe there's something I can do to stay and change. But which you can do if we would destigmatize school, get people trained uh, more appropriately for the jobs that are there, or move with technology more jobs there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you sense? Do you sense that we're getting the message? I mean, because we can't. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the the opiate epidemic and the and the suicide rates in Midwestern and uh, the Rust Belt. Is it? Um, are we getting the message? Do you think is is this getting through? 
I think the the lessons of this last election were really concerning to me in the sense of just still hearing the rhetoric of bring back the manufacturing jobs as the as the rallying cry of of how Trump really took the rust belt and in reality you know he's making deals with individual companies and enticing them to stay but on the broader picture the manufacturing community is not going to come back it's right. glo- we're in a global world so so to encourage that rhetoric i find is is actually discouraging because I think it's it's putting false hope in terms of the the ways that that we can turn things around. Um, I I feel like on the one hand you do have the best and brightest kids still moving moving on moving away this brain drain happening, um, and there needs to be you know I, I found some of the best practices out there around creating this awareness, helping kids to understand what the jobs are there. But it's few and far between. There needs to be, you know, I would love to see national state level initiatives around, let's get real clear in our communities where our assets are and where we're needing people and communicating that much better. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and viewing that as a sense of pride of here's where we're growing or in communities where that's not happening, you know, there, there are opportunities for, you know, Ways to to do online training elsewhere, but it, you know, or, or you know, we're going to have to get creative yeah. around finding ways for for folks to, to to still honor their roots, but but find healthy ways to live. Yeah, great advice, Dana. Let's take a break. Come back, and I'd love you to just kind of just start teaching us more, like you just were. What we can do, what we can do, because the funny thing about the Rust Belt is it can just as easily in 20 years switch to another area, um, another industry-based area as well. So let's learn the skills, folks, and try to figure out, you know, what really you can do about it, how you can prepare your family to still maintain a culture and stay where you want to stay, but, uh, but get ahead in life. We'll take a break. More with Dr. Dana Mitro when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us is Dana Mitra. She's a professor and director of graduate studies in the Department of Education Policy Studies at uh, Pennsylvania State University. And um, she's talking about some research she did on how to build jobs in the Rust Belt. Dana, again, thank you for your time. Thank you. Man, you must be just one of the great success stories from your area. Because you've been to Stanford, you've been to you're at Penn State, and you're going to change this thing in in the Rust Belt. You're doing what you can. We all need to do what we can, and it's just um, an honor to be able. Just you know, I I also came back to my home state eventually yeah. because I was drawn to come home too. I think that's important. So yes, and that's 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 what this is about, right? I mean, we're, you don't necessarily you don't have to leave, but you could, and it would benefit, and you can always come back. But there's also policies that we could institute. There's there's um, pathways we could set up. Talk to us about what what are some of your solutions? What are things that we should make sure are happening? And um, what can we be doing as parents if we find ourselves in the Rust Belt or in the South where they're they're, they're suffering some similar is- issues? Well, in terms of policies, what's really exciting me is is I'm doing some work in Vermont, and Vermont 
has a statewide law that every student has a personal learning plan, um, which is really ambitious. Uh, and the idea is that there's, there's someone at each school talking to each student about their goals and thinking about how to get them there in ways that are much more creative hmm. than just the traditional school system. So, that, for example, if there is a student who's interested in nursing in a rural community, there, that student could choose to take traditional high school classes. That student could also opt to do something called dual enrollment, which would be enrolling in a college program while they're still in high school to start making progress towards that nursing degree to understand, for example, is this really the direction I want to go? Because a lot of times we go, spend money, go to college, and end up with dead ends of realizing this isn't what I wanted to do. Um, there's online enrollment that can happen if communities and colleges aren't close by. There's job shadowing. There's internships. There's there's working out in the in the in the area, for example, on a dairy farm if you're in Vermont, right? And and learning the math and the and the science through those programs. So so there's this look at education, and particularly in the high school years, and, and for Vermont, it's ages. It's great. Seven through 12 have personalized learning plans that are saying that in order to prepare kids for this new, very flexible, globalized economy, we need to really match what are the passions of these kids, what are the opportunities that we can introduce them to in their communities now before they even get out of the high school arena and not just tell them about them, but give them chances to, to interact and go into the community and to learn what, what's out there to build relationships. It's a really exciting program. It, it's, it's very bold and, it, and, and you know, something that, that that's the only state that I know that's oh, yeah. doing this at the state level. But I think it's the direction we're going to need to head in order to, to create, create opportunities for young people. Well, and it seems like, if we're if we're talking with our youth about a personal learning plan, then our parent teacher conferences should be addressing that, and then the teachers could be maybe nudging the parents to understand that if your child is going to be a nurse, which they very easily could be there, they've got the aptitude and the capability, they may need to leave town for a few years to go get that degree. Or we can maybe try it like distance learning, like you're saying. Um, I have a brother-in-law that's a, a, um, a radiologist, and my nephew, this is just because in Utah we don't have personal learning plans that I know of. Yeah. We've hooked up my nephew with my brother-in-law and he's now going to Idaho to shadow a doctor because he really wants to be a doctor. And yes. I'm thinking, yeah, why aren't we doing that everywhere? Yeah, it, it deepens, it builds off of our own personal passions and, and helps kids stay connected into learning, helps kids who are otherwise disengaged to really connect why they're learning things like math to running that dairy farm, for example, mm. or whatever it might be. So. So it, it, it really it really helps kids to dive into learning more, but it also is a way to educate and bring in the community and build stronger relationships between the schools and the jobs and the and the availability of that of that area and to have the tough conversations early that if if you want to be a teacher, an elementary school teacher in Pennsylvania, you probably are gonna have to go somewhere at least for a while mm -hmm. to get that training and come back. Oh. And to just be mentally prepared for that. And it doesn't mean that you have to go away forever. If you get five years of experience, great experience somewhere else, then you can come home and find that job. Yeah, and, or create the job, right? Or, or create the yeah. job. You know, and like you were mentioning, in Utah we have um, call centers where 
and it didn't dawn on me till you mentioned this, but there's a lot of because um, there's a lot of stay at home moms in Utah that mm-hmm. want to be home, but they need money. And when the economy tanked, a lot of these women were able to go get jobs at call centers that yeah. like for JetBlue and for yeah. Continental Airlines. And it, it I didn't realize it, but you brought up a point that it may have really saved our economy in a way. Yeah. And, and honestly, it saved the morale and the it saved the um, resumes of so many people. It keeps everyone going. That globalization, the idea that things like call centers can happen in small communities in Utah is is something that I would hope that our leaders are communicating. So it's not just let's bring manufacturing centers back and if we can, wonderful. But what are some other ways that we can incentivize businesses to use those technologies to draw upon the ready and willing workforce in isolated pockets of this country where there is kind of job deserts and Mm -hmm. less, less availability? That's such a great idea. And but I think you make an excellent point too about we we probably need to be careful with our rhetoric that we're not we don't keep um the dream of the old status quo alive. We 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 almost need to foster the new dream of what the new future could look like. Yes, absolutely. And encourage encourage our young people to be really curious at young ages about what they want to be doing and you know as parents trying to, and if the school doesn't have these personalized learning plans or what have you, really really pushing and getting in with those guidance counselors who are usually completely overwhelmed, right? They're, right. They have ratios of 500 to 1. But if, but if you push to help to get their attention, to think about what are the programs that are there that they just can't necessarily communicate to everyone around job shadowing, around creative ways to get credits. My daughter goes to a school here in, um, in State College, Pennsylvania. It's a public school where she gets, she's able to get some of her high school credits for doing really creative things. So, for example, she runs half marathons at the age of 15, and she gets her gym credit that way, hmm. which gives space in her schedule to, um, to take more social studies classes. She's also gone to conferences with me around issues of student voice and educational reform and, and participated in them, and she gets social studies credit for that. So, wow. um, so ways that schools can think about what are learning opportunities or ways to acquire the skills we want kids to learn um, and encourage independence as a part of that, as, as a way of, of inspiring kids to create their learning and do good work, but do it in ways that create ownership, because I think that's partly what's missing is a sense that kids can make a difference in their own lives. So how do we create school programs that kids can tap into their passions, do what they, they strongly want to do, and the school's enforce that and say, yes, you can. Let's give you the scaffolding to think through how it is that you're going to plan your future instead of expecting that it's going to be told to them or that I'll figure it out once I get to college. We don't have the time for that and or the resources to have students crash and burn or, you know, takes. I, here at Penn State, rarely do students finish in four years because they make some bad turns or they change their majors. And that's so expensive, right, oh. to, to, to spend more than, than four years and have to change direction. So the more kids can come into college with a better sense of who they are or to their training, whatever it is they want to do, the, the better and more successful they're going to be. Oh, such great advice. Do, um, and I, I guess we, we always think and we almost want 
the government to take care of this, the educational system to take care of this. Um, but in, in some regard, it really comes back to families, doesn't it, and parents? Because I sit there and listen to what your daughter's doing, and you, you can tell parents are involved. And I mean, not, and not, every, not every child has involved parents. Um, is there a way – and I guess we could also help each other's kids. So, right? I mean, if, if I could push on my school system a little bit more by being creative and demanding some creativity, I'm assuming that would benefit other kids maybe whose parents aren't pushing. Yes, I know in the Vermont system, for example, in order for this personalized learning to happen, that the community has to be willing to welcome high school kids into their into their jobs and into their their different industries and and you know so so if you're able to host someone in your in your area and you know, we can all exchange in that way, I think there's a role in government and in schools of of collaborating, creating spaces for partnership, of creating expectations around conversations that are going to be having among families and schools about what is it that you want your kid to be doing. Um, I think that there's there's greater awareness in partnerships and incentivization that, that local and state and federal governments can make around encouraging corporations and businesses to want to welcome younger people in to do internships. Um, I think that that idea of really spreading the job market into into ways with technology is a way that, that government and policy can help. But I also just think this general expectation that that high school is a great thing, but there's a lot of different ways within that structure that we can have kids tap into their passions and have it be a more personalized experience through getting out into the community, through dual enrollment in colleges. Over 46% of high schools are now offering some sort of dual enrollment into college. And it's not just the highest achieving kids. We've seen right. the, the B students, the kids who are doing fine, but just, you know, poking along that when they when they show up on a college campus as a junior and take some classes there, it really turns them on to what their future is about. It gives them a sense of personal responsibility that elevates their performance and elevates their drive to get clear on what they want to do. Mm, love so we're it. seeing that across the board. Yeah. Not just, you know, dual enrollment and going to college when you're a junior isn't just for the really, really driven, yeah. smart kids. It's for kids who are also trying to find their way, and that opportunity helps them to find it. Exactly. And then, and then to it, once they, once they taste their passion, the passion carries it. Powerful stuff. Dr. Dana Mitra, we appreciate you. Keep up your great work there at Penn State University in, uh, you know, you know de-rusting the rust belt, uh, keeping the culture alive, the people alive, the relationships alive, and yet making it a healthier place with better jobs and, uh, and uh, a, better, a better life. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner on how you can find purpose in your own life. Four keys to find the path. Stick with us. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his Coaching Corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Hey, as we talk about, you know, building jobs and and being able to find a purpose in life, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I call a path to purpose. Um, And I do this with my kids. I don't we don't do it formally, but um, I'm constantly asking them, 
to be thinking about four different areas of their life. And th- this is a great, I think, exercise for our children, for our teens, but it's also a great exercise if you are burnt out in your life, in your job, if you're just tired and you're – or if you're looking towards retirement and you're thinking, oh, what do I want to do when I retire? Do I dare retire? Four things for a pur- purposeful life. Uh, first, pur- purpose and passion. you got to figure out what is your purpose. Why are you on this great big ball of mud? What are you here to bring? What is the music you must deliver? And if you don't, none of us will hear that song being played. What is the purpose of life? What is it you're passionate about? That's what uh, I think Dana Mitra was talking about earlier when she was saying, if we could just get our kids to college campuses, let them take some classes in the area that they are trying to explore and understand while they're in high school, we might connect into their passion. And once they connect into the passion, they will have the energy to, to move forward and to go forward. And amazingly, what you'll see is they'll also get – they'll get good at what they do. They'll have the energy to do it. They'll want to spend – it'll become their hobbies and their hobbies become their jobs. It's powerful life. So purpose and passion. Do you feel like you know what your purpose in life is? Are you connected to what you're passionate about? What activities do you want to spend the rest of your life doing? What accomplishments do you want to make? Talk to your kids about that. What kind of lifestyle do they want? How do they want their life to work? Do they want to spend a lot of time with people or would they rather be alone in an office? Do they want to – I just want to play video games, Dad. Great. What is it about the video games that what, – what part of that activity do you really like? Because you might be able to find your purpose in life or the job that you can do the rest of your life simply by understanding what it is that you like to do. How do you like to be? Do you like to be outdoors? Are you somebody that needs to be outdoors to be happy? Because if so, you've probably eliminated 50% of the jobs, right? And don't just assume you can get your outdoors on the weekend or at night necessarily. Why not make a profession around it? Uh, How about team and the togetherness, the people that you want around you? What? How many people do you want? Does your child tend to be more introverted or extroverted? Do you tend to be more of an introvert or an extrovert? How do you want the people around you? To, uh, to be involved? Do you want to work out of your home? Like, can you, are you the purpose person that could just work in your back bedroom of your home all day and not be distracted by the kids? For me, I could never do that. I need to get away, do my job, and then be able to go back and then be the dad. I couldn't necessarily do it at home. I've tried. I mean, I've tried to write books at home and it doesn't work as easily. I need to get away and have a goal and and be free and alone to do that. Also, what does your version of health look like? What does your version of happiness look like? And to have these discussions with your kids, do you want to be able to go boating and and be able to finish work early and take your kids boating at night? Is that what makes you happy, really? Um, and some of it might be a dream at first, but a lot of it, too, can be a reality if they've been able to envision and see the vision of what they want to create. So, again, purpose, passion, activities, accomplishments, team, togetherness, and health and happiness. Those are the discussions I'd be having. Those are the questions I'd be, I'd be going over with my kids, if anything, just to start the discussion and start guiding your children a little bit more into what you think they might be good at. What do you see their strengths as? So just some hope, some ideas. That's a little Coach's Corner for you. We'll take a break, come back, whole new hour in just a bit. Stick with us.
is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back. And how's your day going, friends? Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on this side. This is the program where we give you the latest, greatest research to help you make it through this crazy thing we call life and to do so with as, as few scars as possible. And also, may the 4th be with you. Today is Star Wars Day, yes, because it's May 4th. Yoda, the great uh, song from the 60s, Yoda. Which is interesting because Star Wars didn't come out until the 70s. Totally weird. I remember spending an entire day watching Star Wars over and over and over in a movie theater. Hmm. And I don't know if I was doing it illegally or if that was allowed back then. I think it was allowed that you could just stay. Just sit there? Do it again. Hmm. You mean buy one ticket and just keep watching it? Yeah, I was, what was I, like 10? When now, did... now they walk through the cattle prod to get you out. Yeah, yeah. What did you do? Just pretend to pick up some sticky candy on the floor and hide out? I didn't pretend. I did pick up candy off the floor. Hmm. That was back when you had an immune system that could stop a truck. <laughs> now, you know, I'd be dead if I ate something off the ground. I couldn't even bend over to pick it up. <laughs> huh, let me get that for you, son. Anyway, may the fourth be with you. Again, what a great phrase. Uh, everyone attributes it to, you know, some Star Wars fanatic that said it first. But no, it was Margaret Thatcher's political party used that phrase, may the fourth be with you, to congratulate her on her election in May 4th, 1979. When did Star Wars come out? Y'all know? 77? Yep. Really? I was eight years old. I was zero. That's Me too. Sad for both of you. I was. That's what I did at eight years old. I just sat and watched Star Wars for two or three times. I think it's because my mom couldn't pick me up for a few hours. So she just said, I'm going to drop ba- you off at the theater. It was the babysitter. What's the worst thing that could happen at a theater? Right. That's fine. <laughs> but in the 70s, nothing. Come on. Come on. Nothing. Well, never mind. Yeah. Um, we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about why good advice is often bad advice. And it's, huh? it's a, yeah. Sometimes you think you're giving somebody really good advice, but it's not because your advice sometimes is biased. Mm. Like we were just talking last hour about parents that might be telling their kids, you need to stick around here in the Rust Belt because you don't, you don't need to go to any big city to get an education. You could just stick around here. Right. Or giving them the advice, you got to go to college when the kid might be better going not to college but to a trade school. And learning a trade that they could actually stick around town and be a plumber. So now are we contradicting what our last guest said? No, 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 no. That was her, her advice was said. sometimes okay. you need to leave, which isn't the advice you always get. And some other advice is sometimes you don't need to go to college. Sometimes you need to get a trade. Jeff Goldblum said it best in Jurassic Park. Hold on. Is this a movie quote? When you got to go, you got to go. Hmm. It's hmm. a great point, though. A lot of truth in that. A lot of truth in that. And by the way, we probably ought to mention it because it starts tomorrow. Uh, Jeffrey Liam Simpson is going to have basically – he's going to take over one hour of this show at the end of every week. Yes. 
Standing ovation. Standing ovation from his parole board. <laughs> his entire parole board is here. Uh, and in, in an effort to get some time served, you are going to now take the last hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Friday at 9 Eastern, you are going to be launching a movie show still under the Matt Townsend Show umbrella, but you will be talking movies. That way the rain can get all on you. Yeah. And I'm safe under the umbrella. I don't know that I signed off on this because it feels like I'm taking all the risk here. You're not even going to be here. What, what is the name of your show? Have you named it yet? Yes. Woody and the Woody Woodwoods. No. Okay, what is it? Screen Cleaning. Excellent. Uh, you're going to have to get your laugh track timing better. Because no, the, that was perfect. That timing. was a little delayed laugh. So screen cleaning. Just tell us a little bit about it. So you know, one thing that the Matt Townsend show has been missing is an element of fun, <laughs> and uh, you know, good humor. Yeah, and good taste. True. Um, true that. So we're going to have an hour that's dedicated to just a good fun time, all about things in in the entertainment industry, but shedding light on. Good entertainment. So, because there's plenty of bad entertainment the out there. Clean screen could be anything that you would watch on the screen, from your cell phone screen up to the silver screen. But you, the clean would symbolize or signify it's something redeemable. It's good. It's of value. Yes, we're helping to helping listeners find good entertainment that they can feel good about. Okay. Now, why would they think you could do this? Because I seek out that type of entertainment, and I pretty much have an encyclopedic knowledge. Yeah, like annoyingly encyclopedic. So it's not going to be gossip. It's not even really going to be, let's just do a movie review, although there will be movie reviews. How often will you bring up the Kardashians? Never. Wow, it is going to be clean. It's going to exist in a universe where they don't exist. Excellent. Okay, so the, it's screen cleaning, which you can uh, find tomorrow, Fridays, every Friday, uh, 11 Eastern, on the Matt Townsend Show. Screen cleaning. Well, don't say 11 Eastern, because I'm going to get confused and forget about what time it actually starts here. Yeah, don't worry. We're, it's not about you. I was telling that to your listeners. Okay. All four of them that will be listening to you. <laughs> Mom, dad. Sounds like more than four. Yep, it is when they're in your computer. Um, great stuff. So we'll get to that fun. Now you've listened. You now know it's coming up. Uh, I, why the, by the way, why we brought that up is because in a bit we'll be replaying a, an interview we did on why good advice is often bad. Uh, I think that's how we got into Jeff's thing. And then we will also be um, talking... We'll also be giving you some empty news, including how to pick a lawyer if you want to win a case. Make sure they're not a sleeper. Sometimes lawyers get real sleepy. So great advice there, Um, as well as uh, how walking makes your brain work better and it boosts your well-being. We'll get into some of that fun news as well, which I take a walk every day. And we've got another segment to pitch. Oh, that's right. We're still looking for some... Contributors. This one I think you're going to like okay. the most, or at least it will be your second pick behind Bob Moss. 
Great. Good stuff. We'll get to that in just a bit. But first to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Families of the victims of the 2015 terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California, filed a federal lawsuit against tech giants Twitter, Facebook, and Google. The relatives say the companies knowingly supported the Islamic State terror group and its agenda by allowing its followers to use their platforms. Remember, the shooting had, uh, what, 14 people died, 22 injured on the attack December 2nd, 2015. The families in the lawsuit say even if the shooters had never been directly in contact with ISIS, ISIS's use of social media directly influenced their actions on that day. Uh, Without defendants Twitter, Facebook, and Google with their platform YouTube, the explosive growth of ISIS over the last few years uh, into the most feared terrorist group in the world would not have been possible. Wow. So they all... It's a big responsibility. Yeah. So I don't... I mean, is Twitter, Facebook, and Google to blame for ISIS? I mean, no. Just... They're just one of their marketing arms. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Tough economic news. Roughly 2,880 retail stores in the U.S. have closed this year through April 6th, putting 2017 on pace for more store closings than the worst year of the recession. Wow. With uh, e-commerce on the rise, brick-and-mortar retailers are suffering... Credit Suisse, a financial service company, uh, estimates that there could be 8,640 stores closing this year based on past data. Then it indicates about 60% of store closings occur in the first five months of the year. Right? So they're just sort of uh, yeah. estimating out for the rest of the year off what's already happened. If this prediction is accurate, more stores will close by the end of 2017 than the 6,000 that shuttered in 2008 during the recession. Hmm. It's all because of e-commerce and the shifting ways of See which what we you're buy doing, things. Amazon. Hulu launched a, its $40 per month TV streaming service Wednesday, offering subscribers more than 50 live TV channels, as well as access to its streaming catalog. Hulu enters a crowded market for cord cutters, competing against Google's YouTube TV. AT&T uh, and DirecTV have an offering. Dish Network has an offering. PlayStation has an offering. And uh, Popular Science writes that for the price of Hulu... Seems like the best option, at least on paper, for users looking to cut the cord, the cable, and uh, cut and replace it with a single digital subscription. Hulu subscribers can watch channels including CNN, ESPN, TNT, and TBS store up to 50 hours of DVR content for free. First quarter earnings are showing that broadcast TV is getting hit by the same wave that changed or destroyed the newspaper industry. TV stocks down across the board Wednesday. Google and Facebook took 89% of all digital ad growth in 2016. Really? So if there was any money spent on digital ads on your for your phone or computer or whatever, it was Google and Facebook. What that, percentage that did Google take? The whole Google and Facebook, 89%. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, they took my money, that's for sure. And I think the number three or four in that is Amazon, and all of their ads are on their own website. Yeah. Right? So it just went back to themselves. Yeah. Pigs! And finally, a 69-year-old woman in the Philippines was treated to an extra crispy treat for her birthday. Mm. Nanya Cora lives in Artex Malabon her entire life, known as the Venice of Philippines, of the Philippines. Oh, the Venice of the Philippines. The area has been flooded for decades. I don't know if it's there for its beauty or... Yeah, it's, you know, a, it's a flood zone. It's just a flood zone. Um, it's been flooded for decades, making it difficult for many residents, especially the elderly, to leave for her birthday... Kentucky Fried Chicken decided to bring Cora and some fellow villagers oh, buckets wow. of fried chicken. Now, it's kind of a promotional nice. thing. But at the same time, these people That's don't so get nice. any of this. Oh, can you imagine? Uh, but you, can just, uh, you can't just drive there. So what's a delivery person to do? They used a officially branded KFC hovercraft. 
Cool. It's kind of cool looking. The heartwarming birthday celebrations thoroughly enjoyed by many of the residents, some of whom have never tasted fast food before. I thought they were going to come in like on a gondola with a guy well, singing. It's, it's Venice, but not. It's, it's the, the Philippines. Philippine yeah. Venice. So my question is, they've just been exposed to fast food. Is that good or bad? Oh, it's bad. But they've, lived honestly, a life, they've lived a life of no fast food. I know. But and you, then you get fast food. You know what else they've been missing out on? Salt. Gallbladder oh, pain. <laughs> Fatty liver issues. Right. Uh, just the smell of... The modern world problems. Yeah, the smell yeah. of fats, trans fats, you know, eking and leaking through your skin. That's what they've missed. They've missed sickness, yeah, long trips to the bathroom. But they've also missed that magical moment when you just bite into a piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken and it just is so heavenly. Now I want to go there right now. You know what? One hour we will go. No, why don't we just go now? Why don't we send Palakiko? You're doing – we're doing a replay. Well, yeah, but no. We, no, we will work like dogs through <clears throat> the replay. But let's send Palakiko because he's just sitting there doing nothing. He's not even listening. I know. That's what's so great about it. So, um, folks, we are looking for some new – content for the show. And uh, we've asked Jeff to go out and start looking for contributors that could come in and help. So far, he, he really is striking out. He's failing miserably at the job because... Wrong. Okay. Because he... The only one that he's found was a guy named Bob Moss who wants to do a plant show and do plant therapy, which is really... The whole goal is to teach us all to listen more to our plants. Um then he had a, a person that's a stand-up comedian on airlines, uh, not even a flight attendant, honestly, just kind of a stowaway. And that we're not doing because that's kind of weird. And then he had the tax man that likes to do it in the style of a Western, which is annoying. And wow, I mean, I mean, I mean it in the best way possible. It's just hmm. I, don't, I don't think as many people are into Westerns anymore, especially like, you know, early 1960 Westerns. The IT guy? Oh, the IT guy. I forgot about him. The, the IT guy that that doesn't that know sh- IT. That show has everything. So what have you got? Tell me that today's so, option is the is better. The whole reason we did this is to, you know, replace the students that are leaving. And this uh, this segment idea, I think, would be great because it is a student. OK. It's a student reporter. And oh, uh, we, we during the, the pitch session, we had kind of a mock report uh-huh. from this student. You know Napoleon Dynamite, right? Love it, love it. His show. his friend is Pedro Sanchez and we were able to get him in here to do a mock report. Now, we just had our our big election yeah. where Donald Trump was elected president. Right. Your son was in an election. Yeah. So we we had him report on a, a high school election, okay, and our good friend Ron Brokaw was the one that did the role play with him. Okay, let's hear it. With a real election behind us, we here at the Matt Townsend Show would like to take the opportunity to cover an election that doesn't really count toward anything. The Chief Stealth High School Election. Here to tell us more about this close race is high school election correspondent Pedro Sanchez. Thank you. Well, things have been pretty crazy over here. There are two people running for class president. Uh, Pedro, uh, we're having a hard time hearing you. Oh, okay. How about now? Uh, sure, that's fine. 
Well, as I was saying, there are two people running for senior class president, and both of them are making some pretty big promises. Randy Blue says, if you vote for me, you'll never be blue. And Joshua Bradley says, if you vote for me, I will shave my head in front of the whole school. Everyone, including this reporter, is getting really caught up in all of the excitement. In fact, there is going to be a pep rally or something later today. Overall, students have been voting in record numbers this year. And I would like to see more of that. Back to you, Ron. Hmm. So, you wouldn't have to pay him. That's great. A student in school, uh, Pedro. So this is the real Pedro. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess he he hasn't learned anything about reporting, so maybe we could coach him a little bit. But he knows the important issues, which is more than some of our actual reporters can be said about them. Yeah, that's true. Like Chick Shumway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pedro knows a real story okay. when he sees one. I, I mean, Pedro, Pedro's got some hope. Plus, he's got some star power. Yeah. Okay, this True. is good. I mean, honestly, I like Pedro. Maybe, yeah, just have Pedro do more news. And I mean, just like maybe just election news. It's okay. sad that the, the election's over because – So we might not need him for four years or so. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know that I want him to cover class elections or anything like that. So, okay. Okay. That, honestly, this is your best get because star power. Really? More than yeah. Bob Moss? Wow. Yeah, he, he may have just taken – Pedro just took the lead over Bob Moss. Ah, this is great. Finally. I mean, just because we can work with this one. This one we can just teach. We'll teach him how to do the news. And he comes cheap. And he comes super cheap. Awesome. Good stuff. See? I knew you'd pull through five interviews later. Hey, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about why good advice is often bad advice. We'll be replaying an interview we did with Jason Dana on communication techniques. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, I found a, an article here um, that it, it just rings totally true to what I do every day. So I, you know, I'm a relationship coach and a life coach, and I, I give a lot of advice every single day. And so when we found this um, article uh, called Why Good Advice is Often Bad, I wanted to talk to the author of the article, um, who's Dr. Jason Dana. And um, really, when you think about it, we are all being advised constantly, right? So uh, whether it's just going to the doctor or your insurance advisor or your financial advisor or in school, you have career advisors, academic advisors, nutritionists, spiritual advisors, you're constantly getting advice from people. But sometimes you might notice that you take certain people's advice, you don't take certain people's advice. And um, maybe the advice that you're getting isn't neutral. Maybe it's seriously biased. And is biased advice healthy, good advice? So we've we've brought on um, Jason Dana to join us. He is a professor, uh, assistant professor of management and marketing at Yale University. He's here to talk to us a little bit about this topic and help us understand what, what we may think is good advice is often 
not so good, maybe even bad advice. Uh, welcome, Jason Dana, to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. You bet. And great to have you on. And the great uh, research that you've been doing, Jason, with uh, Daly and Kane as well. I know both of you have been a big part of, of researching this good advice, bad advice. Talk to us about um, advice, because not all advice is is kind of neutral, right? It's it's biased advice many times. Yeah, it's it's hard to give neutral advice, and, and particularly what we've been looking at lately and what we wrote the article about was uh, why advice differs from choice. And by that I mean why people do one thing for themselves but then recommend something different when they advise someone else. Interesting. And yeah. what are you finding about that? Why, what are you, why would somebody give advice one way but do something another way? Uh, well, we, we have a number of reasons why this is the, the case. Um, you know, maybe it would be better to start off or, or good to start off with a kind of a concrete example yeah. that we encountered. Uh, so uh, a couple years back, some colleagues and I uh, surveyed some obstetricians and gynecologists that are in the American College of Gynecologists. And, and since a lot of OBGYNs are uh, female, we were able to ask them how they advise their patients regarding mammography, but we were also able to ask them about their personal practices mm. regarding mammography. And what we found is that they were telling their patients to get mammograms earlier and more often than they themselves were getting them. Interesting. So, so that, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, uh, as someone who studies uh, ethics, it, it interests me because I think most people embrace a principle that's sort of like the golden rule. Right. right? You should do to other people want you, what as you'd want them to do to you. But when it comes to advice, uh, people are doing one thing and telling people to do something else. So, you, you know, we have limited uh, ability to follow up with some of these physicians. It's hard to get physician time. But, you know, you think about all the reasons why that might be. Yeah, why like, are they giving? Why are they? Why, why, would, I, why would I give advice um, that is kind of the higher standard than I'm living? I guess, is it me trying to protect them? Uh, to some degree, right? So, so look, we could say cynically, you might think that in the, in the case of physicians, for instance, that maybe they're just practicing defensive medicine, right? They, don't, they want to prevent lawsuits. Or if you want it to be even more cynical, uh, perhaps you think you know, maybe they're getting compensated for referrals. But let's suppose that, that most physicians are indeed well-intentioned, right? That, right? And in fact, what they want to do is help you, and they're just trying to give the best advice they can. Well, there's a lot of less sinister possibilities of why people would, would advise you differently than they choose for themselves. So, you know, maybe, maybe the advice in this case is good. But they're just procrastinating it on following it themselves, you know. So there's that old expression: "The cobbler's children go shoeless." Right, exactly. So, so maybe they should be the, the physicians should be getting them earlier, and they just aren't. Uh, it's also possible that you know maybe they strategically exaggerate their advice. So maybe they expect that patients will be a little bit slow to take up their advice. So they push it a little bit earlier and a little bit harder to make sure that it's followed up. Hmm. But what we're finding across a lot of domains, not just medicine, but all, all domains of advice, is that beyond all these factors, people just have a basic psychological tendency to be more cautious for others than they are for themselves. If you want, you could call that a, a paternalistic bias. Hmm. More cautious for others 
than we are for ourselves. So the financial advisor might be more cautious with someone else's money than with their own. Indeed. Correct. Interesting. Now, is that just good psychology or is that maybe that's good business? Maybe that's how they stay in business is being more cautious with everyone else's money. Yeah, it's both, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so it's interesting. Um, you know, one of the reasons that advice is more cautious than personal choice is indeed this worry about maintaining a relationship or being held accountable for your advice. So it's funny, you know, because we think that advisors ideally should be held accountable for right. the advice that they give right. or that we should want to take advice from someone that we like or that we trust. And this is kind of counterintuitive and perverse, but that can lead to problems. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, really, because there's a, you know, so there's a general psychological principle that bad has a stronger impact than good. And this is true, especially in impressions of other people. So, you know, you can expect to be blamed more for bad outcomes that might flow from your advice than you're credited for good outcomes. And if you think of it that way, you know, giving cautious advice can shield you from blame. So you've probably never heard stories about people who are irresponsibly cautious on someone else's behalf. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's true. So look, if you, if you expect to be held accountable or you want to maintain a good relationship, sometimes it's more important to give cautious advice than it is to give the best advice. Wow, that's kind of – which means – we are, that's the quality of our advice is lowered in an effort so. to be cautious and protected. That's correct. I mean, that's kind of unintuitive to some people. Some yeah, right. People think, well, you know, careful advice isn't that good advice? Isn't it better to be safe than sorry? But what we're talking about here is overly cautious advice relative to what I would do as an expert myself. So, so if I told you to invest your retirement in a money market fund, or even worse, I just told you to stuff it in your mattress. Well, you wouldn't lose anything. Right. Nothing awful would happen. But you'd miss out on years and years of gains that you'd get from, say, investing your money in an index fund that just tracked the stock market. So in the end, you'd be much worse off if you followed that overly careful advice. So true. Um, is it – and then all of a sudden – and nobody knows. Nobody knows because I didn't lose all your money. You feel, I guess, pretty good, but you only got a 3% return instead of a 10% return, but you didn't even know you could get a 10% return. I mean, it's yeah. it's a game. It really is. I guess that's the downside of all of us that kind of are living more to protect and are more fearful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You don't generally think about relationship concerns as a conflict of interest. You know, usually when we say an advisor has a conflict of interest, you think about the simple, like they have a financial interest yeah. in getting you to do something. But, you know, um, trying to maintain a good relationship or trying not to be blamed, right, trying not to be held accountable for a bad thing, is that those are goals that are not always compatible with giving the best advice. Right. right? So, so sometimes it's better to be careful than, than, to be, than to give the best advice you can. So, so almost an anonymous advice might be better, one that's not bound by the relationship, do you think? In a way, sure. Uh, you know, I, I, it's kind of jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah. But if we think about um, what you could do to get better advice, right? Right. Um, you know, one thing right off is I think you want to you take a lot of these accountable, accountability pressures off of the advisor, right? You don't want them to feel t- too pressured or too accountable, 
because then they're not going to want to tell you unfiltered advice, right? They're going to be worried about them giving you advice and it going wrong. Hmm. Yeah. So, so a lot of, you know, you, you, you might solicit advice and say, well, you know, obviously I, I know this is, you know, I'm going to make my own decision, but I, I just want to know what you think. You sort of take the accountability pressure off of people rather than put it on. Yeah. And I guess as an advisor, you could do the same thing by giving the options. Here are the choices, ramifications for each, but you make the choice. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's actually, um, but but if I'm if I'm going to seek out an advisor, one of the things you're saying I should do is try to put the accountability pressure on me, not on them. But I, I guess that's kind of is that not a psychological uh, factor that I, I'd rather someone else be the fall guy. So I, I might norm I might more normally put the pressure on my advisors that they're going to they're going to take the hit, not me. Yeah, yeah that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, that, that's a good way of framing it. And I, I guess, you know, I, I can't tell you what you should value more, right? If you really put a value on, well, if it goes wrong, it's not my fault. You know? Right. I can, I, I can blame the advisor. Well, then sure, go ahead and do that, right? But yeah. if, if you just want unfiltered, you know, best advice, good information, and then probably you want to take the accountability pressures off. Well, that's good. Uh, let's let's do this, Jason. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Jason Dana, Assistant Professor of Management and Marketing at uh, Yale School of Management. We're going to take a break, come back, continue uh, learning some more things we can do that, that might improve, uh, you know, as we're working with an advisor, what can we do to help make sure that the advice we're getting is the best advice, the healthiest advice, good advice, um, one thing we've learned so far: take accountability pressures off the off of the table. Try to try to own your own accountability instead of pushing it onto your advisor. Um, interesting stuff, isn't it? We'll take a break. More on uh, making and and receiving better advice and getting better advice from those around us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting discussion uh, underway here with Dr. Jason Dana, Assistant Professor of Management and Marketing at the Yale School of Management. He's He put together some great research with uh, Dalian Kane, um, and they're talking about why good advice is often bad advice and the difficulty that uh, the, just some of our psychological factors, some of our beliefs, our issues um, they, they come up in just the simple advising that we do, even as a professional advisor. One of the examples that we gave early on was the fact that um, some OBGYNs would recommend um, maybe an annual mammogram, and yet in their own profession, their own life, they actually get mammograms less often than that. So they they tend to give advice that they themselves don't even live and keep. And so uh, that's some of the interesting research that's come out of this. Um, we appreciate, again, Dr. Jason Dana joining us. Thanks for being back with us. Yeah, thank you. You bet. Talk about um, – because one of the things you gave us before the break was some advice about if we can take the accountability pressure off of the advisor, um, then it, it might free them up to, to be, I guess, a little bit more 
real or honest in the in the advice that they're giving? Is that the idea generally? Yes, exactly, exactly. So that that's that's one part of the story. Now, there's another part of the story. You know, when it comes to giving and getting good advice that we didn't talk about, and I guess that's just these. Uh, like a basic psychological tendency, you can almost call this a cognitive factor, to think differently about risks for other people than you think about them for yourself. Hmm. So uh, I'll explain a little. Uh, my old colleagues at UPenn, Paul Rosen and Ed Roisman, researched something they call simhedonia. And this is a word they made up for the positive emotion you feel at others' good fortune. And I guess what they find across a number of studies is that your sympathy for other people's losses is a much stronger emotion than your pleasure that you feel at other people's gains. Right? So if you, if, if you have children, think of it this way, right? Like maybe they want to do something that's fun but a little dangerous. Like, yeah. hey, I want to balance up here. And then you say, uh, you know, maybe balance a little lower down there, right? Wouldn't that be and, – and you may be you know, acutely aware that you're, you're really feeling their pain and you're very worried about their losses, and not so much acutely experiencing, you know, how fun it will be. And oh, wow. the difference in the fun. Yeah. Right? And, and so this is just something we do when we think about other people's risks. We, we can't quite uh, sympathize with their happiness at gains so strongly as we do sympathize with their pain from losing. And, wow. And, and, you know, this is so uncommon to our experience, they had to invent a word for it. Yeah, exactly. We don't have a word. <laughs> so when, when you think about other people, you naturally tend to worry about their possible losses more so than you anticipate joy at their gains. And that leads you again to be biased towards advising caution. Interesting. And, and actually and minimizing good feelings, like the joy of something. I see it in my own work with couples that are struggling in their marriages, um, I, I always I, – I do. I, I want to protect more their pain that they're feeling in the relationship than celebrate the joys that they're having in even a dysfunctional relationship. It's interesting. Wow. Does it – and that's – you're saying just a cognitive kind of factor that each of us – that's just – it's how we kind of value the data. We tend to value the negative data uh, more aggressively and want to fix the negative maybe more than embracing the positive. Yeah, I just don't think we're capable of feeling the sympathetic happiness as much as we are feeling the sympathetic pain. Right? I mean, so you true. see someone get hurt like on, on TV or on you, you know, sometimes you can actually feel it. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, you know? right, right. And, and rarely you get that, that experience with happiness too, but it's just not as, as potent. Uh-huh. And then we give advice very quickly, like, why are they even doing the show? They look so stupid. But you don't, like, you don't see that person. I, I always see it on American Idol where <laughs> you see that person just embarrassing themselves and you're thinking, oh, why are you yeah. doing this? But you, I guess yeah, the other – literally has to turn off the volume or uh-huh. the channel sometimes when someone's doing something painful. Exactly. Awkward. She can't even look. But, but instead we should maybe also try to see that this is, the, this is their 15 minutes. They're – and they're loving it, I guess, up to the point that they get rejected. <laughs> this is a high. There's something exciting for them. Yeah. Right, right. And, and so when we're advising, as an advisor, we probably ought to make sure we're, we're, I guess, trying to make sure we're cognitively focusing also on what is their real benefit that they're, that they're seeking. Yeah, although, again, I think that's a very, very difficult thing to accomplish. But yeah. But if you think about this, like another way that you could give and get good advice, other than the accountability pressures we talked about earlier, 
you know, if I were asking for advice, maybe I should, instead of saying, what should I do, I might ask, what would you do? Oh, yeah. Because then you're not thinking about the risks vicariously anymore. You're thinking about them personally. You're thinking about you, right? And I can combine that with the accountability. I'm like, yeah, I understand this isn't, you know, what you'd tell me to do, and I'm going to make my own decision. But what would you do? With my given set of circumstances, what would you do? Is that what you mean? Well, I I might just ask, what would you do? You know, this is interesting. Um, and why people don't use this kind of thinking when they give advice, but but think about the word majority, right? Uh-huh. By definition, a majority of us are in the majority a majority of the time. Right? <laughs> so, so as a first pass, it's not bad reasoning when you want to think about someone else or what someone else should do to think about yourself and just project that onto someone else. Now, I mean, maybe you have like really good reason to believe in a certain situation that you're quite unusual. <laughs> right, which, which we do think, right? Yeah, but we, we, we think it too often. Yeah. Old advisor Robin Dawes did a lot of research on this, and, and people who don't project in this way, people who predict that others are different than them, tend to be less socially accurate. Hmm. Right? Because most of the time you're not so different than other people. So so as a first pass, I know it's a rough cut, but you know you you might think about yourself and project that when giving advice, and that can help you get over some of these biases of only focusing on the negative and not the positive. Yeah, that's and, and fantastic. Turn, I might ask you, what would you do instead of what should I do? Yeah, and I mean, because like and you've even done it here on the show, uh, a lot of times thinking about these in very specific situations gives maybe a different answer of advice than if it's a very general concept. Hmm, interesting, yeah. Like, like, like even just like being specific and then ask, what would you do? What would you do in this situation? It's so specific that you might get, you know, something a little more accurate. Hmm. Yeah, at least you're getting something unfiltered. So yeah. you're getting an independent piece of information, and, and presumably that's what you want when you're asking for advice. Someone's had a personal experience you haven't had, or they have some expertise that you don't have. So, you know, it, you want to get that information from them, and you want to get it without all these filters, right? Right. Without, without cognitive biases and without uh, concerns for, for being cautious not to be blamed and that sort of thing, and that's the best way to get information. Uh, and one other thing that you do mention in your article is th- that there are several types of advisors. Um, and so I guess when we're approaching somebody that's going to give us advice, whether it's financial or medical advice, is there some background, is there some researching I should do about them and their position? Does, should it matter to me um, their credentials or, their, or how they go about making their decisions? Is there, are there some people that have a better style that might fit me better? Oh, that, that's interesting. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how you'd know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, uh, trying to think about this carefully. Um, you, you know, one one thing I guess I would say that that, that relates to that uh, is just not to fall uh, too in love with this idea of really liking your advisor, really feeling compatible, and really placing too much trust in them. So, so one really interesting study by Schwartz, Luce, and Ariely they they studied people, uh, they, they tracked people's dental decisions, and people that had been with their dentist the longest. 
actually made more costly and worse medical choices, treatment choices. And the reason being is they don't want to get a second opinion because they they feel like, well, that means I don't trust you or, you know, I'm going to hurt the relationship. So I I don't want to seek a second piece of advice. Interesting. Yeah, no, I've seen that. People, you become so close to them that they feel, you know, if they went to another therapist, if they went to another dentist, that they're like hurting their friendship. Right. And, And so then you're bound, right? Yeah. And bound maybe to get bad or more costly dental advice. Uh, Interesting. So that, that is, I guess, why two opinions might be better than one. Right. right. I mean, this is, this is one case where you kind of want to reverse everything we've been talking about. You know, if you were considering whether you should get a second opinion, I might then think, what would you tell someone else? Right. Mm. That, that might be a time to take the outside view. Well, if it was me, would you tell me to get a second opinion? Such (laughs) a great question. too. I mean, a lot of this is, I guess, understanding that there's more going on. There's a psychological side to this, a cognitive side. There's just behavioral theories and histories going on with all of this. There's habits. There's relationships. All of this is compounding in the advice and the advisor or the advice recipient and the advisor role. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and, and a, a less psychologically informed view you know, would say that if someone's giving you biased advice, right, then they just don't have your best interest right. at heart, right? Like maybe they have a financial conflict of interest. So it's kind of like if you don't trust someone's advice or something, it's almost like you're inferring that they're, they're not ethical or they're not good. Mm-hmm. And what we're talking about is, is how even good people could give bad advice, right? Yeah. We're talking about how someone who's well-intentioned, who does care about you, could still end up giving bad advice. And when you think of it that way, right, then seeking a second opinion or wondering whether advice is good is not the same thing as saying, well, that person's, you know, doesn't care or is not trying to give me good advice, right? This is an understanding that we're all prone to doing this. Yeah. And and that's, that's really important, too, just in advising your own children, I mean, you know what I mean? Because a lot of our advice for our children is very biased too. And we love them and we want what's best for them, but it's also sometimes out of fear. You know, we don't yeah. want them to feel pain. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the that's the perfect example of, of caring for – I mean, you know, there's not someone for whom you will feel more agency, for whom you will ever try to make the best decisions and give the best advice. But even with children, right, these biases come into play. Yeah. Oh, this is good stuff. Man, where have you been all my life, Jason? This is great. And this we got to get this information out there because it really is. It's not we're not saying people are mean and they're trying to mislead you. I mean, there are a few of those, but the majority are just good people that don't know what they don't know. Exactly. And this is this is a, an approach that I bring into ethics and other people that are doing what we call behavioral ethics do now. Mm. Traditionally, you would you would try to uh, sort out what's right from wrong and teach people what's good and what's bad. And these days we're looking more at what you call ordinary unethical behavior. Why even good people can sometimes do bad things. Basically why we all fail to live up sometimes to our own moral standards. Oh, that's huge. And and again, that's everybody, right? I mean, that's everybody, everybody. Not the extremes anymore. It's just the common folk now. Right. When we talk about these extreme examples, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's not relevant to me. But I think it's relevant. I think everyone recognizes that sometimes we're not as good as we want to be. Yeah. 
we're not as good as we would ideally be. So that's kind of more relevant in all of our lives, understanding the psychology behind why we fail to do what we want to do. Mm. You know, I got to have you back, Jason, because I want to talk more about the ordinary unethical behavior. I'm sure you've got a whole class on that. So um, we'll have to get you back when you're free again down the road. Sure, anytime. This was a lot of fun. Fun for us, too. Jason Dana, Dr. Jason Dana from uh, Yale School of Management. Appreciate you so much. Um, wow, that's cool stuff. Again, and we're, and we're everyone's giving advice all the time, and yet we don't see our own bias. We don't see our own um, fears, our relationship issues that come into play on all of that. So we'll take a break, come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Hey, again, May 4th. May the 4th be with you. It's Star Wars Day. And uh, if we're talking Star Wars, maybe we need to talk about the three-ton tire that suddenly explodes in the air and then lands on a car. Sounds about right. It's exactly right. Huge tire suddenly exploded into the air and landed on a car, leaving the vehicle completely flattened. The tire blasted upwards after bungling workers at a depot started inflating it and forgot about it. As as a result, the three-ton wheel became an overinflated and it then exploded, demolishing a Toyota Corolla that it landed on, and now the vehicle's been written off. The incident uh, took place at a car repair center in south-central Russia. It is reported that employees of the car repair center in charge of inflating the wheel got a little distracted, you know, which we tend to do. And as a result of their mistake, the huge uh, three-ton wheel exploded and, you know, caused a ton of damage. So one of the rules, never, uh, never distract or interrupt somebody when they're feeling fill, filling up the tire you don't you don't mess with them that's great advice i mean it seems obvious and don't park near a service station where they might be filling up tires do not pass go sadly the car do belonged not to dollars <laughs> the car belonged to a female accountant of the car repair center and now she's trying to figure out how she can write off the car Sounds like she needs to talk to the tax man. Talk to the tax man. He'll help you. By the way, luckily, no one was injured in the uh, situation there. Also, um, a man gets a new mortgage um, fraud trial because of a sleeping lawyer. Again, people just not doing their job. A businessman will get a new trial on mortgage fraud charges because his defense attorney was seen sleeping by the judge. Witnesses and the federal court jurors who convicted him last year, U.S. District Judge Donetta Ambrose, ruled that James Nasida was denied a fair trial because Stan Levinson dozed during the October trial. Levinson has acknowledged that he fell asleep because he was taking cold medicines that made him drowsy. Because Levinson was seen sleeping several times during the October trial, he therefore was not functioning as counsel during a substantial portion of Mr. Nasida's trial thus violating the defendant's Sixth Amendment rights to a fair trial without a sleeping attorney. Now, this is a great lesson, I think, for all of us, Jeffrey, because you, for example, how many times have you fallen asleep? I see right there. Uh, During the show or? 
No, at home. Oh, at home. Well, every day. It's more rare at home for you to fall asleep than here. Well, I fall asleep, but I don't I don't always get a lot of sleep. Yeah. By the way, I got eight hours of sleep last night. I did doze off in uh, the recliner for about 45 minutes yesterday. Did you? Just like a just like a good old dad would. But my wife wasn't home, so I knew I'd get away with it. And she's not listening today, so I know I'll get away with it. So you were watching the children and you were sleeping? No, 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 no. They were with her. Oh. So you were just the cats away, the mice play. Or sleep. Hmm. Well, maybe she needs a phone call. I dare you. Why isn't she watching or listening to the show? Um, she's hmm. probably in a recliner or chasing after our two children. She deserves to be in a recliner. Mm-hmm. Married to you and pregnant. Was that a controlled burn? That was a controlled burn. Anyway, uh, so watch out, folks, for sleeping attorneys and um, overinflated three-ton wheels. Life's hard enough. We don't need these people making it worse. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We'll be back. More fun straight ahead right here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, and may the 4th be with you. It's Star Wars Day today. So now every day you can just go up, I mean all day today, you can go up to your friends. Hey, may the 4th be with you. And if you want, you could do like a Yoda voice. Oh, this is this is Yoda singing his top ten chart. Seagulls, stop it now! So this is one of the this is one of the bad lip syncing videos that somebody did yeah. for Yoda. Uh, and it's genius. The best one lip, I've ever seen. BLR, if you go to YouTube and look up BLR, bad lip reading, this is Yoda. It's an incredible music video. Or type in Seagull Stop It Now. Here's the best part right here. <laughs> you can put me down. You, and Yoda's in the backpack going for a little ride. Yes. See, By the, the way, when you go to Disneyland, yeah. the best backpacks you're going to see are the Yoda backpacks. Really? Where he's hanging around your neck. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, I think it's fantastic. It's, uh, it, oh, you ended it. it that's right. Oh, they, you want some more? Well, okay. That's where they do the drop. And he just is like tapping his little Yoda stick. <laughs> and he's annoying people. Anyway, um, happy uh, May the 4th be with you day. Again, folks, you only get one year to do this. One time a year, one shot at it every year, once is all you get. So use it up today. May the 4th be with you. And uh, a little thing you can, as soon as somebody brings it up and says it to you. Sorry, Sorry about that. Jeff can't get enough of it. Um, when somebody brings up, hey, and says, may the 4th be with you, ask them if they know where that was first used. Because we now have been saying third hour, straight hour of talking about it. Margaret Thatcher's political party first used it to congratulate her on her election, May 4th, 1979. 
So again, the Brits beat us to it. Come on! They like to take credit for everything, don't they? Yeah. They're just good. Once they're so, once they're good, you're good. You know that. So today we will uh, continue celebrating that. Of course, maybe even uh, we'll, we'll replay that wonderful uh, Yoda music. Um, I don't know what we call it. What was the name of it? Seagulls? Seagulls Stop It Now. Seagulls Stop It Now. We'll play that for BYU Sports Nation. We'll be visiting with them, finding out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. In fact, I can see him outside of my window. They're just, they're actually doing their pump-up exercises now. Is he catering an event? He looked like a, a caterer. I think – and they're wearing their colors. I don't think he's a caterer. They're just wearing hmm. their BYU colors probably because they're on campus and there's a big event going on here. And so – We weren't told to dress appropriately or anything. Well, we nobody up. knows us because we're on radio. Oh, I guess you're right. No. Yeah. Anyway. If anything, they're asking us to refill their drinks. Yeah. They're usually – we're just running stuff around. Um, so we'll be uh, talking with them in a bit. Also, we will get to, uh, to talk to Heather Johnson if she could somehow make it in through the traffic today um, on why gratitude matters in marriage. This is an important lesson, I think, for all of us to take back to our wives how grateful we are to be married to such incredibly wonderful people. I think, Jeff, that would be a really important thing for you to do very quickly. But again, my I, I could, you know— Sing praises to my wife all day on the show. She's not listening. No, but I'm saying you go home and do it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so wait, I talked talk to her. Well, instead of being in the reclining chair and taking the naps that you take, maybe you ought to be scrubbing the floor, you know, vacuuming. Well, my mother-in-law did that yesterday, so I didn't have to. Wow. Was that wrong? Well, you're just not getting it, are you? You need to get ahead of events. Yeah, there would be events transpiring in your life if you sort of kind of butter her up beforehand because it's not going to be no the best of situations, no matter how smooth it goes. So you, you got know, a baby coming, help. and so you need to you need to pack away a lot of um, love pounds. I, oh, I sensed a lot of resentment. My, oh, la- no. my last child, because my wife's going through this situation, I'm over here just like, yeah, this is great, no problem. You know, I didn't and, even gain a pound. Yeah. She's, well, she's like, was it a problem? I go, not for me. I had a great day. I don't know what the, the problem was. So. <laughs> I'm I don't safe. think this was as hard as you're making it sound. I'm safe. I know my mother-in-law is not listening either because she's in the, the conference right That's now. That's why they're not listening. Uh, Terry, we make sure that we send a copy of this to the family. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank I'll you. forward that, yeah. So Heather Johnson will be helping us talk about why gratitude matters in marriage. We will also, of course, be doing more empty news stories, including what you can do to boost your brain and your well-being. A very simple study with a very simple answer. Hmm. It's going to blow your mind. Lobotomy? Nope. But what if we have an Abby normal brain? Well, that's a given. And I've never even met Abby. So anywho... We will get to uh, what to do about making boosting your body and some hero stories as well at the end of the show. We got a lot to get to, but let's kick it all off with some fun news from Terry South. What's going on, Terry? Three people killed, nine others transported to the hospital from what is believed to be an accidental car uh, crash at an auto auction in Massachusetts, officials said. Did you see this video? By the way, that is not fun news. Yeah, I know. You started with 
the least fun. Well, I really didn't have a lot of fun to go to okay. here, so I had to just kind of go with what just I give had. Give us the hard The news, crash right? was at a Linwood Auto Auction about 24 miles northwest of Boston when a oh. driver of a 2006 Jeep Grand Cherokee waiting to enter the auction suddenly accelerated, entered the building at a very high rate of speed. The driver has been identified by officials as a male in his 70s who was employed at the auto auction. Several hundred customers were inside the building. A few hundred customers were outside the building at the time. Two women, one man died. Officials said six people remain hospitalized with life-threatening injuries. The Massachusetts State Police said in the news release that they believe it was an accident. Ah. You know, foot slips off the brake pedal, you know, whatever happened. Manhunt underway Wednesday after uh, two Chicago police officers were shot and wounded. They sat in an unmarked vehicle. They were... Uh, the, 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 the attack was described as a targeted attack. Um, and other news, a lot of uh, quarterly reports coming out. Uh-oh. First quarter reports from businesses. Facebook. Yeah. How, how, how much, how successful or unsuccessful oh, were they? I think they're very successful. They reported another solid first quarter Wednesday with revenue that beat a- analyst estimates uh, thanks to strong demand for social networks, mobile ads. Yeah. Solid user growth across its its all suite of apps, you know, Instagram, all of that. So it says revenue in the first quarter ending March 31st rose 49% to $8.3 billion from $5.3 billion in the same period a year earlier. Hmm. So first quarter last year, they made $5.3. First quarter this year, $8.3 billion. It seems like Facebook would be smart to just start buying up apps. Yeah. Like, they should have maybe just bought Snapchat. Yeah, but they bought Instagram, and now they're just copying everything that Snapchat does onto Instagram. There you go. Beating them at their own game. The gains represent Facebook's eight straight quarterly revenue beat strengthened by mobile video ad sales, including those on Instagram. Mobile ad revenue represented 85% of total ad sales in the last quarter, up from uh, 84% in the last quarter and 82 in the same period last year. Hmm. So, mobile ads, driving the business. Oh, no, big money there. Uh, the social network, Facebook, hiring 3,000 people to monitor live video for the company. So, 3,000 people to do nothing but just monitor live video streaming. Yeah. Oh, because there's so many tragedies well, coming out of the live video. There's been murders and suicide and abuse and those types of things that are out there. So 3,000 people are going to watch that every day. Wow. What a horrible job. What do you think the turnover in that job will be? I think it'll be very high, or the people that are in it will be very slow because yes. it'll be like they'll just be vegetables. They'll need to have like you know counseling because well, be only one in five hundred things would be ever interesting. I don't know. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg made the announcement on his page early uh, yesterday. These reviewers will also help us get a better at removing things we don't allow on Facebook, like hate speech. And child exploitation. He also added, there's no way we're going to be able to look at everything. Right. So things will get through. We'll do our best to take it down. But You know what I would tell him? Get an algorithm. He has That's one. That's all we hear about with you guys. Now get an algorithm. A I video knew a, watching algorithm. I knew algorithm one time. He is uh, a good guy. Good guy. <laughs> and finally, a drill-wielding a drill wielding robot that bores into your skull for a quick spot of impromptu brain surgery. Mm-hmm. It's a new research project at the University of Utah. They have developed a computer-driven automated drill for cranial surgery. That means safely cutting an opening called a bone flap in the skull so that the brain can be accessed underneath. While it would take an experienced surgeon two hours to carry out this task, using hand drills, the University of Utah's robot can do it in two and a half minutes. Ugh. The point being it's 50 times faster also, carrying out cranial surgery quicker means less time for the wound to be open and a patient to be 
you know, under uh, anesthesia, thereby offering a reduced risk of infection. Don't, Make it fast and quick. Don't bring that guy to a party. <laughs> what do you do? I open people's heads. Do you remember when uh, Jeff had a bone flap? Mm, it was a tough day. Flap on. He kept like flap off, opening and closing. He goes, "Look, it's open." That made me sick. Did you hear about this invasion of one kilogram water rats? Giant rodents that weigh about two point two pounds. Are um, an R O U S. A rodent of unusual size. Yes, an R O an R O U S. Yes, um, seen going for the kill in Sydney Harbor. There's footage of them online. We will link to this story on our at Dr. Matt show. It really is um, on our Twitter feed. It's it's a it's a scary rat. I mean, there's rats, and then there's these rats. These rats you could actually saddle up, and ugh, boy. Anyway, they're uh, they're coming on ground uh, on shore in Sydney Harbor, and um, now closed circuit television footage at night is is picking up these images, and really, they're startling. So one reason we tell you these stories is because we want we want you to understand how lucky you are to live where you live, because you don't have rodents of unusual size where you live. Luckily. You you don't have 2.2 pounders. I do have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, though. They're not rodents. They're children of unusual size. Cuteness. Cuteness. Yeah. Yeah. That's a better way to put it. They are cute. You've got beautiful children. Makes you wonder. What? Come again? Hmm? Hmm? Uh, <laughs> may the fourth be with you. Hmm. Just bringing that up. Walking is the answer, my friends. Researchers have found that the foot's impact on the ground during walking sends pressure waves through the arteries, and that significantly increases the supply of blood to your brain. Thank you, Jeffrey, for the walking music. Greater impact is shown through running, but the study saw that a significant enough increase of blood flow um, goes to the brain, and it helps your brain work better. It boosts overall well-being simply, you know, by walking. It was already known that running caused impact-related waves of blood to flow through the arteries that then sync up with the heart rate to regulate the amount of blood that circulates through the brain. But by using ultrasound machines, the scientists in New Mexico Highlands University were able to see the same if, on a smaller scale, positive effects of blood flow to the brain simply by walking. So instead today, pull over, park your car, and just walk a bit. There are a lot of women walking right now because they're having to park uh, in Orem. We have we have a women's conference on BYU campus today. So there are tens of millions of women gathering <laughs> uh, to BYU campus. Why'd you laugh at the number? Uh, no, I was just thinking about a different joke I heard. Okay, good. There's probably 20,000, I think the number might be, uh, women on campus today. And... So parking's scarce, and it's just – it's intense. So walking, just know if any of you are listening, it's every little step you take, it pushes more blood flow to the brain. Every move you make. I'll be watching you. I'll be walking you with you. Hmm. Yeah. We'll work on that one. No, we won't. <laughs> Let's just let that one go. We'll let it go. Okay, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about gratitude. We'll be visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation further down in the hour. Stick with us. It's all straight ahead. 
Don't miss it. We'll be back. Welcome back. Uh, today we're talking about why gratitude matters in marriage with Heather Johnson. She's a professor here at Brigham Young University, has been teaching for nearly 16 years on campus and um, has a great website too, familyvolley.com. If you go check that out, you'll you'll be able to see all of her passionate ideas about how to make a family last and, and how to play together and stay together. Also, she has a book, Family Fun Fridays, soon to be releasing Family Fun Mondays through Thursdays and Family Fun Weekends and then Family Fun Sabbath Day, Keep It Holy. <laughs> Lots of great books coming out. I'm behind. You've got to get on it. Heather, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Today, why gratitude matters in marriage. Yes. I mean, gratitude matters everywhere. It matters everywhere. But it seems like we we don't show enough gratitude to the one that we probably need to show it to the most. Absolutely. And we also kind of hit on gratitude a lot, you know, come October, November, December. We kind of are seasonal sometimes with our focus on gratitude. For Mother's Day. We're super grateful for Mother's (laughs) on Mother's Day. One day, yeah. but the rest of the year, it's like, eh, yeah, sure. whatever, right? Yeah, right? I'm hungry, exactly. and I need clean clothes. So when we talk about this topic, it's really one of the most important things we can discuss when it comes to marriage. For me, I call gratitude a gateway offering or a <laughs> gateway emotion, a gateway expression. And the reason why is because gratitude opens the gates to all of the other things that are so important in marriage. And I don't just mean like having fun together, even though that's very important. We are talking respect. We are talking selflessness. We're talking trust. We're talking dedication. This is how we feel affirmations from one another. And gratitude is that gateway expression or gateway offering that opens the door for all of those things to be present. Yeah, that's good. And it's pretty amazing to think that this one thing can actually open the door to everything, to everything for us. Uh, Even when we look at recent research, we've got a lot going on right now in the last probably four or five years that show us when we look at couples for nine months or longer, we find that when mutual gratitude is expressed between these two couples, married couples, and even couples who are just cohabiting. What we start to see is they're more likely to handle the day-to-day issues that come to them with with a healthy, joyful approach. And not only that, but couples who express gratitude stay together longer. Do they? Isn't that, I mean, it makes sense. You're going to stay where they like you. It's exactly right. And where you feel that you're of worth. And that's yeah. a really important point. We'll get to that in a little bit, but that's a really important point with all of this. It's not just our ability to reach out to someone else and tell them why we are are thankful for them or why we're grateful for them. But it's more than that. It's the fact that when that comes back to us in return, we feel of worth. <clears throat> and that's really important. So a couple of reasons why gratitude matters. We'll work through today and yeah. kind of kind of refocus a little bit why, why it's important. The first one is that gratitude really helps us continually remember why we chose to marry our partner in the first place. Yeah, it like resets us. It's exactly right. And this is forgotten so very fast. You know, we joke about a honeymoon phase. We joke about those first couple years before kids, uh, if you have that. But really, we, even quicker than that, forget why we married our oh, spouse. Yeah. We yeah. forget. And the really ironic thing with this is usually the reasons we married our spouse in the first place 
are the reasons we can't stand them six years down the road. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. The things that drive us nuts. Yeah. And it's that fast. And, yeah. But that was attractive back then, but you were also totally high on love. <laughs> it's exactly right. And, you know, the chemicals and all of that. I even think with my husband, there are so many reasons why I married him. Some of them, though, if I don't express gratitude, not just for that exact reason, but in general, they really start to bother me, mm. right? My husband's very spontaneous. I, I don't love living that way. I no. like to be prepared. You have a plan. I, I do, and I like to know what's coming, and I have six kids in tow. So spontaneous like, isn't so cool when all of a sudden right. I don't have what I need or they don't have what they need. I married him because he was spontaneous. I married him because of that. Yet sometimes if I'm not expressing gratitude, that drives me crazy. Isn't that interesting? I, it drives me nuts. I, I don't like it. I want him to give me more information. I want to plan. I want to know in advance. And I have to take a step back and remember, wow, one of the reasons I married you is because this is an amazing quality of yours and right. it's something our family needs. And so once I start expressing that gratitude again, not just for the spontaneity, but in general, I remember, oh yeah, I, I do love this about you. That's right. This you is aren't something so that, bad. Yeah, this is something that complements our relationship. Exactly. So another one, gratitude helps us recognize that our spouse is special and it helps us recognize their special and positive qualities instead of the things that annoy us. Yeah. Otherwise, we're annoyed all the time. Right. <laughs> if we're not looking for their positive qualities, then we're seeing the negative. It really is that simple. And so this really comes down to the type of questions we're asking in our marriage, because whatever question we ask, we'll find answers to. Right. And so if we're not asking, why am I grateful for my husband? Why am I grateful for my wife? Then in a sense, we're actually asking, why do they annoy us all the time? Why are they so messed why up? Why are they so driving me crazy? Yeah. But if I spend each day thinking, why am I grateful for my husband? Those are the answers. That's what I'm going to seek out. And I'm going to seek out, I am grateful for his spontaneity. I'm grateful for all he does for us. I'm grateful that he, every single day before he goes to work, he gives me a kiss goodbye. I'm grateful that he shoots me a text at lunch. We start to see those little things that remind us that they are filled, filled with positive qualities hmm. instead of filled with a lot of really That's annoying cool. qualities. Yeah, right? absolutely. And this is all about, again, the question we ask. So if you're finding yourself in a place where it's really hard to see or express that gratitude, ask the right question every single day. Ask yourself, why am I grateful for my spouse? Why am I grateful? What's good? And we'll find it. Oh, we'll yeah. find it. It's there. It, it is there. That's pretty cool. And if you are struggling – when you get those answers, write them down because sometimes literally in a 24-hour period, we know we're grateful for them and then we forget why we're grateful yeah, for them. Exactly. So the questions always have to be asked. But more than that, write it down. Refer back to it. When it's a frustrating day, open up whatever book you've written it in and look at it and go, oh, yeah, look, there's like 50 things here I love about him mm -hmm. or I love about her. And let your brain remember those things. Yeah, and then you'll habitualize it. Then your brain will eventually create a habit of – kind of habitually looking for why you love them. Absolutely. And asking those right questions instead of looking for the reasons why they're to blame. You need to justify why, why you're awesome and they're not. Yeah. And again, why there's nothing to be grateful for. It's good. Good So stuff. it's a really important thing. Okay. Another thing that gratitude does is that showing gratitude, it gives us extra incentive to continue to maintain our relationship. Huh. Now, we see this in the studies that go on. Even our, you know, our studies we talked about as we began this segment today but showing gratitude gives us that extra incentive to continue to maintain what's going on. And the reason why is we see our relationship as having worth. Mm. When we see that there's worth in our relationship as a result of expressing gratitude to one another, all of a sudden there's more incentive to work towards or continue 
to grow that worth in our relationship. Right. Right. So I'm trying to think uh, an example that's not marriage. Uh, for example, when we try to lose weight and we lose weight and we lose a couple pounds and we see a difference. Oh, yeah. As soon as we see a difference. Do more. Do it again. Yeah. It's exactly right. right. What am I doing? Let's keep doing that. Right. And so that gives us an incentive to keep going with whatever we've been doing. Yeah. Right? It's validating the your assumptions, your data. Sure. And even all your work. Right. right? Even all the focus that you put yeah. mentally and physically. And so it's just like that. It's the same with our marriage. When we express gratitude and we see good things, we see that our relationship is growing exponentially. It's of worth. Yeah. When we see those good things, we're more willing to put in more energy and effort. We Absolutely. want to put in more work. Yeah. So expressing gratitude helps us do that. Not only does it help us see our relationship as valuable, but it helps us want to work harder because it's got value. Totally. So we're going to put more into it. And, and, and yeah, then it becomes this loop, right? Then it just – now you've got a nice feedback loop and you get more out there and the value goes up and then, you know, you have grandkids. It's <laughs> and then it's all downhill and then, and then it's no, all then great from there. life is so much better. So much better. <laughs> so much better. Let's do this, Heather. Let's take a break and uh, come back, continue the discussion about <laughs> gratitude, why it matters in marriage. More with Heather Johnson when we come back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Welcome back, friends. Uh, Dr. Matt here with Heather Johnson. Heather is talking to us about why gratitude matters in marriage. You can find out more about Heather on her website, familyvolley.com, or check her out on Twitter, at Pen and Paper Girl. Um, she is a great uh, resource. And today, not just working on family issues, but really marriage issues, how to make the most of your marriage by just noticing the good that's happening. Absolutely. We're focusing on gratitude, right? And just yeah. making it a part of our everyday married life. Because it's it, it seems like it's such a simple thing. It does. So we, yeah, it's so ignored. It is. And it's the first thing that goes really is yeah. our ability to recognize. And there's there's two parts to this, right? It, it does no good if I just recognize all the gratitude in my brain but never choose to express it to my husband. Right. We want both right. essentially. We want both. So we've talked about how it helps us give – gives us incentive to maintain our relationships. We know that it helps us recognize the positive qualities of our spouse. We also know that it gives us more uh, – well, just recognition of why we got married in the first place. A couple other things. Gratitude leads us to serve. And the reason why this is so powerful is because service directly leads to increased love. So essentially gratitude leads us to loving our spouse more, right? If we drop that service out, that direct path leads us to that. What happens here is that especially when our lives get busy, which they do, and things get harder and there's mortgages and kids and jobs and stress and all sorts of things to take care of, this is an opportunity through gratitude for us to look for ways that we can buoy up or lift up or serve our spouse. Right. If I am grateful for my husband, then I am looking for the things that make him awesome and I am more likely to then want to serve someone who's awesome and needs help, right? Yeah. It's that simple in my mind. I see him. He's great. And when I see that he's had a hard day, because I love him so much, I have that empathy and I want to somehow help. 
Mm. I want to do something with that. And so that service leads us to then in turn love them more, which is really cool. Totally cool. So if you're thinking, well, I'd like to increase my love for my spouse, be grateful. Express gratitude. Live that life where you're grateful for them all the time in expressing that, and that starts to happen, especially after a couple years get under our belt, and it gets hard, and it gets yeah, life ugly and deep and mucky. Right. Not because we chose it that way, just because life is like that, right? So gratitude is going to help us lead to service. A couple other things. Gratitude leads to compassion, to having more compassion. Now, compassion by definition means to suffer together. Really straightforward. Yeah. When we express gratitude for our spouse and truly feel that, we are much more likely to want to suffer with them, to really want to feel what they feel, to have that true empathy. Now, a couple things. This offering of compassion and empathy, that's what builds trust and respect in our relationship. When we've shown our spouse that we truly get them, they feel understood and they trust us more. That's straightforward, right? Again, yeah, right. we're working direct lines here. And this, again, comes from this gateway offering or expression of gratitude. When we express gratitude to them, they feel understood and we have compassion for what they're going through. When we don't have gratitude, we blame. So that's on the flip side, right? Where it's right. like, I'm not grateful for anything you do and I kind of think you're a jerk today. And so why would I have compassion that you had a bad day or that you lost your job or that anything – and I'm looking for ways that actually I can blame you and I'm cooler than you and you're kind of lousy, right. right? And that's what we start to do. When there's no gratitude in our relationships, we start to inflate how lousy our spouse really is. We start to inflate their faults. The sad part is while we're doing that, we start to inflate our own virtue. So I all of a sudden make my husband out to be pretty lousy, much mm -hmm. worse than he is because heaven forbid he didn't take the trash out today. And on the flip side, I make myself out to be much more awesome than I really am, Yeah. which, which is just a recipe for disaster because I'm it's not seeing so anything true. clearly, yeah. right? And as we start to do this, again, with no gratitude, then we start to make the situations in our marriage out to be much bigger than they are. So when we even look at the example of the trash not getting taken out, is the trash really that big of a deal? Not so no. much. Is it a big enough deal that I should make it an issue in our marriage? Yeah, probably not. Not no. so much, right? right. And, and all of a sudden we've inflated its importance. This can all be stopped when we express gratitude. We can stop all of that when gratitude is a part of our daily marriage, our daily marriage. So life. true. So it's going to help us have compassion. The next one is that gratitude is going to ensure us and our spouse that we are enough. That's cool. This is back to the validation where we kind of started at the beginning. There is this place where with gratitude – we are able to ensure that we feel and also our spouse feels that they're good enough, that, that they're enough and that we accept just who they are. In marriage, there's often this feeling that what we offer might not be accepted or isn't enough or isn't the right way. And when our spouse is expressing gratitude to us, we can take a step back and go, I'm good. Mm. I'm, I'm okay here. I, yeah. I really am okay. And we can understand that they know we're giving it what, what we can and that they can sit okay with us too. Now, it works the same way. This is such a powerful offering that we can give our spouse to show them that we recognize them, we recognize what they do, and we're good with that. We get them. And so we're okay in our marriage when there's gratitude being expressed. Yeah, yeah. Well, and all of a sudden – and you're okay. How else would you know it's working unless you hear it right. or you see it? Unless I mean, it's shown, yeah. right? And so it offers us true acceptance, which we all need. We all need to feel that acceptance and that appreciation, that essential validation that tells us 
we're okay. Mm-hmm. And and we know – I know I'm okay with my husband when he expresses that to me, when he oh, shows yeah. that gratitude for the fact that I am trying to do things to serve our family and to serve him. And that, again, comes through gratitude. So well, and, all of these things – Because he could also get so in his own guilt like – I should have been cleaning the garage, not her, but she always has to clean it. She always has to do it on her agenda. And right. I, I was going to get to it. So then we don't ever express gratitude because we're ashamed or we're guilty or we're – We're prideful. We're prideful. We're, selfish, we're bummed. Yeah. Right? All of those things. And you know, some of those emotions where we recognize we're, we're lacking – I'm sometimes grateful for it. It's like, well, I recognize I needed to handle this differently. Mm. And so when we want to process the guilt, that's one thing. But when it turns into like you're talking shame, that's going to keep us from expressing gratitude to one another. Totally. And so we're kind of stuck there. And then the cycle where, again, we make ourselves out to be awesome through justification. We make them out to be worse. And all of a sudden the garage is a really big deal when actually – it's not that big. It's not a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. And this all comes because we're blaming instead of expressing gratitude. Yeah. So what would happen because then there's this weird cycle where you might you might use it against your partner and, you know, be the martyr. Well, fine, I'm just going to do the garage. If you're not going to do it right now, I'm going to just go do it myself. But then then there becomes this cycle where we we can't get out of it because she's martyring and he's guilting and shaming and feeling shame and he's not going to express gratitude. And so what if he just came out and said, you know what? Thank you for cleaning the garage. Absolutely. Awesome. I mean, she she then have to decide if she receives the gratitude or if she's ticked. It's exactly right. And the sad part is if she only cleaned the garage to hear him say, Oh, I'm sorry. I totally yeah, told you I, I should have done that. I blew it. She shouldn't have cleaned yeah, the garage right. anyway. <laughs> well, she's going to be mad and you'll know. But so if we express gratitude, it's also you ought to try to receive it. Absolutely. It goes both directions, which yeah. is a really good point. Because if we're always giving it, that's awesome. We should be. And we should offer it regardless of what's coming back. Right. But for it to be mutual and to come back, we do. We have to sit with it. We have to be grateful. And that's where we, like you're saying, reevaluate our motives. You know, if I'm only doing things because I need to hear that, yeah. I need to reevaluate why I'm actually expressing gratitude, <laughs> yeah. why I'm actually serving, why I'm seeking out to have compassion for my husband. Uh, but if I'm doing it for the right reasons, that's that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, if you're, if you're using gratitude to get what you want, right. then um, – you're playing the game. You're playing the system. Yeah. And eventually it'll bite you because there will be a time they won't give you what you want. And then you're stuck because it didn't work. Yeah. And now you're kind of out of options. That's right. I think too as women, oftentimes because a need we tend to have is to feel validation yeah. and that appreciation, which I think supersedes – Men don't often need that to the same degree. They're looking for more of that respect and trust and mm-hmm. dedication. Uh, if we're not careful, we actually express gratitude to then take care of those needs that aren't being met in other ways. Instead of speaking up and saying, you know, this is where I'm hurting. This is what I need. Yeah, so and true. so like you're saying, we use those manipulative ways to kind of get what we need. But in the end, it's not fulfilling anyways. No. doesn't and, do what we need. And so in the end, you just have to be honest. Right. And, and heaven honest. forbid, we're yeah. honest. I mean, what would right? happen? Right. <laughs> well, the thing is, honesty is so vulnerable. It makes us so vulnerable in our relationships. No, Just totally. like empathy, right? Yep. To truly have empathy, to take this gratitude and allow it to move into, again, this gateway offering of a bigger picture, which is empathy, we have to be very vulnerable to put ourselves in a position to try and feel as they might feel mm-hmm. and see things as they might feel. Yeah. So it's tricky. And I think that's where we can kind of wrap things up too is to recognize that gratitude is contagious. 
gratitude brings more gratitude. So the more willing I am to see the amazing things about my husband and the things he does and all that he does for our family and express this, he in turn will feel again good about our relationship, our relationships of worth. He knows he sits good with me. We're okay. Right. And in turn, he'll be open to seeing where he can express gratitude for me also. So and good. now you've got a beautiful cycle that just continues to strengthen, especially when things get hard, especially when they're, again, mucky and, and dirty and dingy and, and struggling. Gratitude's going to pull us through those things. And and and, it, and it, the neat thing too is it only takes one to start doing it. It does. Yeah. One will do it. Even though we always think, well, when they do it, then yeah. I will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I would love to be grateful if he would do something to be grateful for. <laughs> or when he shows me gratitude, <laughs> yeah. then I'll go ahead and return the favor. And that's the same thing with children. We're in this cycle where we think as soon as my kids behave the right way, then I will show them that increase of love. Then I'll commit and show the gratitude. That's backwards. We have to show the gratitude and make the commitment first and in turn they will then come our direction and yeah. be grateful. And it's the so same way true. with our spouses. So true. Same way. Heather Johnson's her name. Uh, FamilyVolley.com is the game. Go check it out. Great insight about why gratitude matters in marriage. Thanks, Heather. We will take a break and go to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out how they're uh, handling all of these ladies on campus because they're superstars. We'll, we'll find out. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, that is Yoda singing his uh, his top chart hit, Seagulls Stop It Now. Seagulls Stop It Now. Uh, you can find it on YouTube uh, underneath the bad lip reading category or uh, organization. That's You're going to want to subscribe to those. Uh, Yoda's just killing it. And why are we doing it? Of course, because we're going down to two great heroes just like Yoda. Uh, today at BYU Sports Nation, it's Spencer and Jason Shepard today. Um, how are you, gentlemen? Good. I was wondering how in the world you were going to tie that in, man. No, you know how? Because I... may the fourth be with yeah. you. Yes. Yep. Done. Matt, which Star Wars character do you think best uh, <laughs> describes you? Yoda. Okay. I mean, just physically? Is that what we're talking about? No, 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 not physically. I'm just talking, it encompasses everything uh, about you. Which, which yes. when you watch the movies, any of the movies, do you look and say, you know what? Yes. I can see myself there. I can see, it's Yoda. Okay. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't go there. Wrong. But my wife found some hair on my ear, and she's <laughs> like, hey, Yoda, let's get that out of there. So how about you guys? Because, I, I mean, I could see a lot of really great characters in both of you. Um, I'm not hairy enough to be no. Chewbacca. No, no, no. You you remind me of Luke. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I can own that one. I can, I can own that. Super whiny. Um... <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Like, just, just you know, great uh, with the force. Yes. Yes. Oh, um, you were thinking of good things. Yeah, yeah we were trying to think of the, of the positive attributes right, right, of right. certain characters. And then, and Spencer, who would you want to be? Are you kidding me? Is this even a question? He's Lando. Yes. <laughs> Lando Calrissian. <laughs> Come okay. on, Yeah, Matt. that makes sense. Yeah, that's a no-brainer there. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Weird. Um, yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Hey, I do have something for you that I, the minute I saw this, I thought of you guys, especially Jason, because for some odd reason, this has Jason just written all over it. How about um, 3D, you know, those 3D printers? Yes. Well, now what you can do in Australia, you can get 3D printed meat. What? Yeah. So you just put in what kind of meat you want, and there's this technology where it will actually start in any shape, any design. Like you could get a BYU logo, and then it would it would actually take a meat product, kind of like what would be the inside of a hot dog maybe or like a Spam like loaf. Like Spam. Yeah, that's uh-huh. what I'm thinking. Spam. But it would then, and then it would etch it out in, in sausage and steak, and it would taste like either sausage or steak, and you could print any logo you want. Um, in meat form. Oh. But here's mm-hmm. my question, uh, and it's really just one word. <laughs> why? Well, well, why Why wouldn't you? Like, how else could you get your logo in meat? We ask that question more to you during this little seven to nine-minute segment that you, we have with you, you always than ask any why. other time. I know. It's so weird. The things you bring up, why? 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 I don't see why you wouldn't want, like, your name in meat. Like, if you could have a hot dog, but the hot dog said Spencer, would you not want to chow down on a Spencer dog? That just sounds bad, doesn't it? It's no different, though, than, like, you know, you get uh, you get your team. You, you yeah. know, they've got those, like, waffle irons that uh-huh. you can have, right. like, with your team exactly. logo. It's just like that. Or you go to Disneyland and you get the Mickey waffles mm-hmm. for, like, $20 per waffle. But you got to pick up a meat cartridge. It's a little different. <laughs> Because you got to go to Walmart to get your meat cartridge. Yeah, but like, do you get a re- can I get a can I get my my meat cartridge refilled? Do you, yeah. Like, where do you go for that? Yeah. Well, you know what? They're still working that out because they're trying to figure out where do you go? Do you go to the butcher? You know, or do you go to the paper store? And here's the question: If one color of the meat goes out, do you have to replace the entire cartridge? Oh no, because the pink is the dominant color. There's really <laughs> there's that faint color of pink. Oh. Pink meat, we call it. Are we not in a society yeah. where you can't have just the other two colors in the cartridge print out? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. why, when just one of the three colors goes out, you have to buy a completely totally. new cartridge? No, I know. Come on. Do you remember the day when we used to get our meat from a cow? And now, we, now when <laughs> we drive... Can print it. Now we can print it. And your I don't kids, know if I would trust that. Can't you just... You know you'll walk in and your kid will be sucking the meat out of the printer. Just yeah. His head will be right under the little faucet thing. Yeah, it's not like a, Like a Slurpee? Yeah, like a Slurpee. Hey, guys, uh, you're still doing your show today, even though it's women's conference, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a miracle that we got here. That's good. I know it is. I know it is. I saw you running in sweating. What um, What's on your show today? I'm still thinking about the mini miracle that it took for me to park my car. I know. You were blessed. It was quite the ordeal for Spencer getting a parking stall. Hey, today. we're here. You know what? Come a little earlier, Spence. There's nothing but parking here Truth. at 6 and after. <laughs> When you're when you're showing up at four thirty, right. lots of parking here. <laughs> uh, today on the show, kind of a mixed bag of awesomeness. Starting with this, it's Final Four national semifinals for the BYU men's volleyball team. Jeremy mm. Jordan, the eye candy for the volleyball team, yes. is going to join us from Columbus, Ohio, to preview that matchup tonight. And they're just one part of what has been an amazing spring for BYU sports. Right. So, is volleyball the team that has your attention? Or our baseball, softball, track and field, golf. I mean, all of these teams, if they're not ranked, are close to being ranked and crushing it right now. So, who has your attention? You guys do. Wow. 
Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Hey, Ryan Andrus is back from his mission. He's back and ready to contribute to the BYU basketball team. He will join us in studio. Plus, you may have heard this. Kalani Sataki was back in on the East Coast yes. and was hanging out with the Harlem Jets. It's a youth football uh, team. And we're going to have the co-founder, one of the coaches of the Harlem cool. Jets on, Tyson Pratcher is going to join us. Sweet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. See, that's all. You're locked and loaded. It's a good day. Okay. Four minutes away, and you'll have everyone's attention. Good luck, and go print your meat. Just a little advice. Hey, <laughs> you're not going to want to miss that show, really. They're, they are charged up. And I think because we sent them down the names, their names in meat, they're even more excited than usual. So you asked that question who wouldn't want to eat meat with their name on it? Right. That's kind of creepy, though. Well, no, it's like it's like Soylent Green. It's people. (laughs) Um, The meat is people. Okay. By the way, you can get more of Jeff's uh, movie connections on his new show called Spring Screen Cleaning. (laughs) Called Screen Cleaning, which will be tomorrow at this very hour. This hour tomorrow for every Friday. Uh, 9 Eastern. My show will be wrapping up yeah. 24 hours from now. I know. It's so exciting. Hey, um, as we uh, as we like to do, uh, we always like to give you a little empty news before we wrap the show up and just let you go. Vermont Chocolatier sends residents on a golden ticket hunt. A Vermont town is giving away golden ticket courtesy of its local chocolatier, and the prize is a free parking for a year. Not a tour to the chocolate factory, darn it. The limited edition chocolate bars were created by Vermont's Tavernier uh, Chocolates. The search for the three golden tickets began with the town manager buying the first bar of chocolate. Stephanie Bonin, chairwoman of the National Main Street branch, says that the goal of the promotion is to recreate scenes from the film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Where everyone in town search for the golden tickets, parking enforcement officers will be handed out the other tickets, handing out other tickets all week. Movie tickets so residents can go see the original film in the theater. They're just bringing back life to their town. And forget about parking for a year. If that promotion were going on here today, yeah, people would do it for parking for one day one, here at BYU. Yeah, one afternoon, for heaven's sakes. Hey, our hero story of the day uh, comes to us from the University of Texas, Austin. A mother from Illinois is being hailed as a hero after she risked her life to help a victim of Monday's deadly stabbing rampage at Texas University. People were running, running, running all over, and I was like, what's going on? Who's hurt? Leona D. Amor said, uh, while visiting her daughter in Austin, Texas, a violent scene erupted on campus. Police scrambled to respond to reports of a man with a knife stabbing students. People are screaming and running. So I turned around to my daughter and, and said, stay in the building. Do not leave, she said. As people ran for their lives, she left her daughter's side and ran straight for the chaos. I did run. And when you're in the military and you're trained in the military, To be a first responder and things are going down. People need help, she said. Now a chiropractor in Naperville, Illinois, the former U.S. Navy medic, found a student suffering from a brutal wound. And I was like, what happened? What happened? And he said, I've been stabbed, she said. And I wanted to help keep him calm. So she did her work and uh, as a a first responder, really, calmed him down. And she said, I was meant to be there for him that day. There's no doubt in my mind, she said. Diamore said the wound was so severe that she could see his spine and believes that he would have died within minutes had she not helped. 
She said she's spoken to the boy since, and uh, he's recovering, and she hopes to meet him again and see his family in Texas. So there you have it, a hero stepping in Leona Diamore. Uh, thank you for being a hero and really just doing what your training taught you to do, but going above and beyond the call of duty. Remember, folks, all of us can be heroes to the people in our lives. Let's start at home first. Let's start in our marriages, as we've talked about in the show. And let's take care of each other. It's a, it really is a small world when you think about it. And uh, if we band together and take care of each other, it's a lot safer. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. And until then, take care of each other. BYU Sports Nation is up next.